podcast this week, it's time for another of our occasional guest hat-tricks, as we're joined by a trio of wonderful directors. First off, goal! It's Mike Rianda from the Mitchells Versus the Machines. Scorcher! It's Alexandra Aja from Oxygen and Crikey! Back for more, it's Sound of Metal's Darius Martyr. All that and more on the movie podcast that has forgotten what a hat-trick actually is. It's been a very hard season for Liverpool fans, folks. Very hard season, indeed. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I'm joined by not a hat-trick of colleagues of such lethal cunning, because there's only two of them, and that is technically a brace. A brace of colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I like hat tricks, like the one that Johnny Depp does in Benny and June. Oh, well, that's problematic. <laughs> Cancelled. I couldn't remember which film Charlie Chaplin did one, but he's also problematic, so it doesn't really help. Oh my god, it's like a Russian I doll was of cancellation. Go and see Benny and June at the cinema against my will. I was dating someone at the time, and I wanted to go and see Jurassic Park, and she made me go and see Benny and June, and I remember thinking I could be watching fucking T Rexes, and instead I am watching Johnny Depp play fucking footsie with bread rolls. Hey, like that was a great routine, and that is actually a direct Charlie Chaplin lift, of I course. Know. But you know. but it doesn't have any dinosaurs in it, does it, Helen? Yeah, but you're still showing off the fact that you were dating, so you know <laughs> mm-hmm. you've got that going for you. <laughs> uh, and partially making myself sound extremely old because I was dating back in 1493 or whenever it was that <laughs> fucking film came out. So. Yes, it was 1493 when Jurassic Park came out. Yes, the conquest plus or minus 500 years. How did the date go? <laughs> well, we watched Benny in June. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty much the bottom line of it. It's romantic. Okay. Is it though? More romantic, Helen, I put it to you, than Jurassic Park. I say no. Yeah, few things are. Well, we're also joined by our great big fucking Arab, James Dyer. <laughs> Hello. Man who never waits for an introduction. <laughs> Hello, Jimbo. I will not be constrained by your uh by your 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 trivial rules. Um someone pointed out one of our listeners has started listening to the podcast from the very, very, very beginning, which is yeah. never, never advisable because they were terrible. But um apparently my very, very first words on the podcast were to you, Chris, and they were, How dare you address me directly? Which uh, I think is pretty much in keeping with the relationship that we have built over these years. So plus a Georges, plus <laughs> Ah I love it. I love a oh, bit of Spanish. Days. Uh <laughs> anyway, here you are, here we are. And because there's only three of us this week, sad news, everybody. Sad news. The three-fact structure is postponed for one more yes! week. Yes! We can oh, no. only I do mean, it. No! What a shame. Oh, oh. Can, uh, just ruined everything. Oh, no. We can only just do it gone. with a full complement <laughs> of colleagues of such lethal cunning. Uh, so hopefully next week we'll have someone in the revolving fourth chair. But as it is, you get a reprieve. Did you both have a fact prepared for this week? Sure. Oh, Good. absolutely. All Excellent. the facts. Just Excellent. falling out of my arse. Facts everywhere. Can't, can't, uh, can't get them. <laughs> uh, fact. Can you tell me who is the other the, the other title star of Benny and June? June. Mary Stuart Masterson. Mary Elizabeth Masterson. Don't. Mary Stuart Parker. Sarah Mary Jessica Lu- Parker. Mary Louise. Mary Louise, Mary Louise Master Antonio Parker. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Mary Stuart Masterson. Can you yes. tell me who directed Benny and June? No. Uh, it is. Oh, yes. Um, um, no. Don't look it up. Don't you fucking Google it. Tell me without Google who directed Benny and June. I know Oliver Platt's in it. Does that count? No, it doesn't no. count. Do you get points for knowing Oliver Platt's in it? Well, I mean, really? Uh, I don't know. 
Who directed it, Chris? Jeremiah Chechik. Of ah, course. Of the Avengers fame. Correct. Can you tell me one other film that Jeremiah Chechik oh, directed? Oh, da, 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 that stupid comedy thing that you like, the National Lampoon's Rubbish Vacation, that one. All right, very good. There you go. There you go. In in lieu of the three-fact structure, we had an impromptu Benny and June quiz, and I think you both got one right and two wrong, I think. Hey, something, okay. something like that. I got two uh, right and one wrong. Did you? You went yeah. Mary Stuart blah, blah, blah. No, I said Mary Stuart Masterson first, and then I went on to the others for a comedy Mary bit. Mary Elizabeth Masterson. Oh, it was a bit. It was a, it was it was a, a, bit. It was a funny bit. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, Yes, well, in that case, Helen wins. Like all wins. the funniest bits, you have to explain that it was a funny <laughs> yes, bit. Yes, you have to tell someone it's a bit after it. <laughs> oh, it was a bit. It was, it was very good. Very, very good indeed. Anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about Benny and June. Uh, because we don't have a three-fact structure this week, we're going to go straight into the listener question. But before we do, folks, guys, it's happening. It's nearly here. Cinema <gasps> is reopening in this country in... Four days' time, three days' time, hopefully by the time people mm. have started listening to this podcast. It's on Monday, May 17th, or Wednesday, May 19th, if you're a Cine World or Picture House customer, as I am. It is my local, so I don't think I'm or going to get to see anything. Or the 24th, if you're in Northern Ireland. So, you know, 24th. So Bit of a shame. Northern Ireland always overlooked in the in the cinematic stakes, sadly. No, you'd be but right, cause Boris is building a bridge, isn't he? So, he is you know, building you a bridge. get back that way. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Sure. Him and Big Liam. Uh, what is the first film you're going to see? We're going to see uh, like a proper screening of a movie film next week, which is mm. extremely, extremely exciting. There is an, uh, a little outing. Empire is going to see a screening of an upcoming film, which will be the first time we've been to the cinema in many, many months, and the first time we've been all together in a cinema in, frankly, a very fucking long time. So uh, I'm pretty stoked about that. Well, that, that doesn't count, does it, Jimbo? doesn't count, because um, it's no. a work trip. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I don't know is my plan. I'm going to surprise myself. I'm going to be spontaneous. I'm going to see what there is. And I'm almost invariably going to end up watching Peter Rabbit 2 in IMAX. So. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Honestly, at this point, Peter Rabbit 2 will do. Absolutely. Really anything. I'd be bang out for a bit of Peter Rabbit 2. Helen, what about you? What are you going to watch in the cinema first? What are you going to pay to see? Pay to see. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I should have specified. I, I'm quite up for Godzilla vs. Kong. It's on our local on Wednesday, mm. which is when our local opens, Chris. So we mm-hmm. could go and see Godzilla mm-hmm. vs. Kong. I mean, there's also some, you know, quality films, some of the Oscar contenders, and one of the films we'll be reviewing today, but um, but I, I want to see a big, silly movie. Oh. Big, silly movie. Nomadland, it is, Len. Never <laughs> helps, but I haven't decided what I'm going to see first. I, I, yeah, I might go to see, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll say it later on, because we'll be discussing it in the review well, section. There are, there are some fun ones. There's a good selection of things showing at the Prince Charles in London, if you are around mm. there. Uh, they've got Clarks and Singing in the Rain, 2001. In addition to some of the more recent ones like Sound of Metal, uh, Nomadland, Judas the Black Messiah. So good selection of things there. It would have killed them to put Commando on. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Go Commando, folks. Oh, no. Always go Commando. No, Monday, don't. May 17th. Go Commando for John Matrix. Anyway, this week's listener question comes from John Embury via Twitter, and it is related to The Mitchells versus The Machines. We'll be hearing from that film's director, Mike Rianda, uh, who is a listener of the pod. And the question is from John Embury at underscore John Embury. Who is on your director, Mount Rushmore? Now, in The Mitchells vs. the Machines, which is a fantastic film, the main character, Katie, is a budding filmmaker, and she has her own, we see at one point, she has a Mount Rushmore of her director heroes. So... Everyone knows what Mount Rushmore is, right? So, you know, it's the massive sculpture in the Black Hills in South Dakota that has four presidential heads 
carved into it. Quick bonus round. Name the presidents. Washington, Lincoln, <laughs> Helen, Jefferson. Step in for the old and gold. Yep. <laughs> and I forget. You forget? <laughs> really? The, the, the Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Oh, Roosevelt. No. Which one? Teddy. God, well done. Okay, Helen wins again. Uh, yes. So Mount Rushmore, real life, it is the giant heads of four of, I guess, the greatest US presidents of all time. Uh, but in the Mitchells versus the Machines, Katie has replaced those heads with her director heroes, who are Greta Gerwig, Celine Siama, Lynn Ramsey, and Hal Ashby. Mm. Ooh, interesting lineup, I have to say. So John Embry wants to know of us, who would be on our director Mount Rushmore? So who would be the four faces on your Mount Rushmore and and why? What was your criteria for choosing the directors, folks? My director Rushmore would, it has to be said, probably be Wes Anderson, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, oh, and Brian Cox. Yeah. I, I did that. In fairness, they have all directed things. So, you know, I did actually answer the question in, in my defense. didn't, though, did you? Is, it, is, is that your answer? Please tell me that's not, <laughs> please tell me that's not your answer. Yes, yes, that's my answer. I'm now done. <laughs> it's, like, it's like if this was like an episode of QI, the clacks would have come on <laughs> immediately. Bream, bream, bream. <laughs> um, yes, I was waiting for someone to do the Rushmore joke. <laughs> there we go. Never, never let it be said that I will leave an open goal, you know, open. Yeah. I, my personal Rushmore are directors who are the probably the most iconic to me, and I'm caveating this, I'm not saying they are the greatest directors, although one of them I think is, uh, would be Mr. James Cameron. Uh, Mr. Who would Peter have thought Jackson. that would be the first one you said? My God. <laughs> Controversially, Mr. George Lucas, uh, not necessarily for his skills as a director, but his, his work as a director has influenced me, I think, more than, than most others. And of course... Lauded filmmaker, Mr. Aaron Sorkin. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Director of two stunning four-star masterpieces. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. I, I was wondering because uh, obviously Greta Gerwig is on Katie's Mount Rushmore and Greta mm -hmm. Gerwig has only directed two films and uh, so has Aaron Sorkin. But, right. you know, so, it, it you know, it's fine. But it's, for me, it's it's more about a, a body of work. And it's about, it's for me, this is about the directors who are lodged in your head and who inspired you to get involved with film on some level, whatever level it is that we're involved with film at. Mm. Um, so that's my criteria for this. And so it means it's directors I kind of grew up loving and admiring their work. Which means that, you know, given the when I grew up, it's mostly a bunch of, of white dudes. But mm. what's interesting about Katie's, and, you know, be interesting to see, you know, a different generation, the filmmakers that they're growing up with. And Katie's, yeah. Katie's list, I think, is, is really, really, really cool and interesting. Hell's Bells. Yeah, look, I'll be honest, I'm not as cool as Katie because I was, I was trying to think through the female directors that I admire. And most of them haven't done enough films, you know, to, to kind of compete with some of, my favourites. And I kind of struggle with that because someone like Greta Gerwig, she has a 100% hit rate so far, but it's only two films. So how do I measure that mm. against, you know, some of the guys out there? Um, so I hope that this Mount Rushmore of mine will change in the future and I will have to re-dynamite the sacred site of the mountain hmm. um, to recreate it with, with a bit more representation. But at the moment, I think my four would be Spielberg for sure, like nailed on, Rob Reiner, 
I can, I can count the Coens as one, right? I can count the Coens as one. The Coens. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, and Billy Wilder. Hmm. Hmm. But then it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it all comes down to, exactly as Chris was saying, like what has shaped your life mm. to this point, the things that have had the most impact on you. But also we're kind of feeding into the cult of the director, which we are obviously guilty of from time sure. to time, which is, you know, you know why, why directors? Why not, you know, screenwriters? Why not just people who have influenced us generally in the world of film? Because that's a bigger mountain. That gives me back Nora Ephron right there. It and does. Anita Luce, probably. So, you know, that'd be better immediately. I mean, you can have a multiple multiple Mount Rushmore. It's, it's big enough. You can get like a, a It's really a not. And again, it is a there. sacred site. It was a bad thing to do in the first place, guys. We should not be dynamiting the Black Hills. But then how would Nick Cage have got up to all sorts of shenanigans in <laughs> National Treasure? I want to say two. I want to say two. two that's two, when he was yeah, yeah. in that one. Yeah. Now, is it the Book of Shadows or the Book of Secrets? Secrets. One of them is Blair Witch. Yeah. And the other one's Secrets, uh, yes. <laughs> and, and I mean, where would, where would Cary Grant have gone if they hadn't done this whole thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. What would Solid and Ursa and Non have remodeled in Superman 2? You know, so I think it's a, it's a good thing. Or the aliens in Mars attacks. What would yeah. they have recarved? You know? Absolutely. Anyway. I'm just Anywho, saying, Mount Rushmore, yes. I would love to go, actually, but it is problematic. I'm just saying we should acknowledge that. And also, yes, it is unfortunate that, that the people who have made most of the films most meaningful to me right now are mostly men, and certainly in terms of the top four. So. It's an outrage is what My it is. My apologies to myself and to all the other women out there. All right. So, Jimbo, um, Jimbo, you went for James Cameron? I did, because Aliens was... Was and is the greatest film ever made, but also it was my first film. It wasn't my first film obsession, obviously, that was Star Wars, but uh, Aliens ha- has been, I've had it been in a passionate love affair with Aliens, the film, not the, you know, thing. Aliens. Uh, yeah. For many decades. <laughs> Star Wars, obviously, I've seen, I think I've, the original Star Wars, I've definitely seen more than any other film because it was the only film I owned on VHS yeah. as a child. Yeah. So I watched it every day for a lack of choice. Um, so definitely that. And Peter Jackson, like, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I love Frighteners and I love some of his other films. But for me, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy is such is is such a part of my sort of cinematic life. I love it so much. Not just because those films were the big films in some of the early years that I was at Empire, uh, but also just because they are fucking magnificent. And for me, th- like that is cinema for me. Like mm. I love them so much. They're so great. They're just wonderful. Yeah. Can't get enough of them. I respect that. I don't respect some of your choices, but I respect them. <laughs> I'm trying to pick uh, picture this, how it looks. So it's got uh, Jim Cameron, Peter Jackson, George Lucas. It's a whole lot of beards. And it's a lot of beards. And then yeah. Aaron Sorkin, who is beardless. So well, we could give him a beard. And Jim Cameron now is without a beard. So which one goes yeah. in the kind of crease of the mountain? Is that is that Lucas then, number three? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Do you have to keep redoing the George Lucas face every few years? No, go, I, think, I think go with classic era 70s Lucas. And uh, then you go with sort of gonna, like you're not going to sharpen it up every every decade or so. No, and then and then eighties eighties Cameron again full beard, and uh, <laughs> and Hobbit era Naughties Jackson. That's what I'm saying. All right, okay. And Hell's Bells, you're you're four again. So Billy Wilder. Yep. Spielberg. Spielberg. Yes. <laughs> Remember the most famous director of all time. Yep. Spielberg. Both Coens. Both Coens. Yep. Joel and Ethan. Okay. Yep. Good. And who was the fourth? Uh, the fourth was Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner, that's yeah. interesting. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Princess Bride, Very Spinal Tap, When Harry Met Sally, Stand yeah. By Me, American President, come on. A few good men. A few good men. And there are come a few on. good men on this monument as well. All right. Okay, cool. Uh, my selection, uh, just for completists, my selection is, you'll never guess, Sam Raimi. What? 
Yes. No way. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid shocked. so. I'm afraid shocked. so. I'm afraid so. John Carpenter's Giant Face. What? Yeah, one I know. Of his, one of his lesser known films, that. Yes. <laughs> John Woo. Hmm. Okay. And then I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to, uh, so to speak, I'm going to one-up Helen and go for three faces instead of two from my from my last big giant face and go for Sucker Abraham Sucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Okay. I kind of like that one because I don't think anyone knows what those guys look like. So <laughs> you have three quite famous directory faces and then you know, tourists will be like, who, who, who is that sort of... You know, kind of many-headed Cerberus type thing on the end. What is that? It's terrifying. We're running out of mountain space. I think. Do we do we have it as a Rushmore, or do we go for kind of like one of the columns in the House of Black and White? You know, the Temple to the Many-Faced God. So we just have their actual faces cut <laughs> off and on little. No, not that. Little no, that sounds, oh, Let's not cut anybody's faces off, James. No, I know he, he said John Woo, but that's no Take excuse. Take their face off. Yeah, just because he said John Woo, it's no excuse. No, but I wonder if it, to to represent Zuckerman's Abrams and Zucker, you could perhaps just. <laughs> you could perhaps just erect a statue of a giant pigeon. Yes. <laughs> That'd be amazing. That'd That's be amazing. That's a top secret joke for the three of you who've seen it, by the we're way. Keeping so. it to directors only. Obviously, I would have a Mount Rushmore with Kevin Feige's head on there and a giant <laughs> baseball cap that would be brought in by helicopter and lowered <laughs> very carefully on top of his head. Uh, but no, it has to be directors. And uh, and so, yeah, Raimi, Carpenter, Woo, Sucker, Abraham, Sucker. I, I thought long and hard about this. I gave it all a five minutes thought. You know, I I, wow. I, 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 you know, I love Spielberg. I love Jim Cameron, but I also figured you guys would take care of that. But, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're right. the four who kind of, I think, you know, there's the Monty Python guys, although no one's putting Terry Gilliam's face on one of these things anytime soon. Uh, there's, you know, Terry Jones, obviously, the, in terms of the directors, mm-hmm. the people who kind of shaped me as a as a movie fan. I think these these four are yeah. There. So there you go. I was I was tempted by Del Toro as well. You know, I had a I had a few that oh, came yeah. close, but yeah. But I yeah you know, I also these are the formative ones for me. These are the mm. ones before I started doing this as a, as a job. So that's kind of where I went for as well. Whereas people like Guillermo, you know, Edgar like Wright, yeah. people like that are are directors who we've kind of grown up in a professional capacity observing and admiring. So yes, those are our, those are our selections. Uh, just going to throw it out to you guys at home. There obviously there are no right answers, no wrong answers. What a relief it is to do a question in which there is no right answer or wrong answer, or we're not oh, I'm admitting sure we'll anything. I'm sure we'll answers were wrong. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. sure we will be. But uh, why don't you throw us your four? Well, I'd love to hear from people who are around the same age as Katie and uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines as well. Like who are the directors who are floating your boat? Who are the directors who are shaping you as a film fan and as a potential filmmaker as well so you know reply to me on twitter i'm at chris hewitt or slide into my dms and let us know the people who are really beginning to float your filmic boat uh and maybe we'll read out the best ones on next week's show and hey if anyone is of an artistic bent out there and they want to quickly rustle up depictions of what our choices would look like on mount rushmore knock yourselves out have a go have a go wouldn't say no to that at all. Okay, so time now for our first guest this week. We have a bumper show, so we're going to lead off with Mike Rianda, the director of The Mitchells vs. Machines. Animated movie came out on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. It is absolutely terrific. One of the films of the year, if not the film of the year so far, and I would say probably the winner of next year's Best Animated Feature Oscar. 
we loved it so much. And as it turns out, Mike is a fan of the podcast. And so we managed to connect and get him onto the show. And uh, Ben and I had a cracking time talking to him for this interview. And we also did a spoiler special chat as well, which will be available for spoiler special subscribers as uh, probably around the time you're listening to this. As a matter of fact, I'm almost finished editing it. So here we go. Mike Rianda talking to me and Ben Travis. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by someone who apparently listens to the podcast, uh, which means I'm going to be on my best behaviour, and I have to issue a full and frank apology for everything we've said and done in the past to the director of The Mitchells versus The Machines, Mr. Mike Rianda. How are you, sir? Thank you. I'm so good, and I'm so happy to be here. And uh, I might have listened to the podcast where you mentioned the movie and talked about Buckets. But I'm not going to talk about that. We're going to get past that. We're going to go past that. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've done it. Now you've done it. Because I can, I can only imagine that there are numerous deleted scenes in the Mitchells versus Machines in which you know when the when the, the shit hits the fan, the poop hits the bucket. <laughs> they're at. They're actually. You know, there's so many cut jokes from the movie. I think there is a bucket joke. So you're in good. I mean, company. we get Aaron on the toilet as well. We get Aaron, your character. It's. Still blagging my head to see you here and hearing the voice of Aaron in my ears is uh, yeah it's well it's a real I'm I've got a lot of rage that's <laughs> <laughs> the voice actor hello it's me Aaron it's very close how many characters do you play in the movie Mike um I play several my fav my my most proudest achievement is the giant Furby which is just me screaming <laughs> at the top of my lungs into a microphone. <laughs> And the editor being like, you're maxing out the microphone. You need to stand on the other side of the room. <laughs> How did you get into the the head of a giant Furby? Um, I just, I summoned the dark forces inside me. I thought about, um, you know, the fear of children. I just thought of fear in children's <laughs> eyes and I just started howling. And <laughs> That's amazing. Do you give yourself these roles... Why? Why do you give yourself these roles? I mean, not not that sounded more accusatory than I sure. intended I mean, to. I mean, it's 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 correct to accuse me of that. <laughs> why? Why, Mike? I need answers. Why do you give yourself these roles? Uh, uh, is it do you get do you get extra money or or what is it? Uh, mostly money. This whole thing is a big cash out for me. <laughs> That's why I got into animation. I said I move. I was like, not finance. Animation is where the money is. Um, but uh, but no, I. It, it, it basically just comes from, um, you know, because I'm used to working in TV. So you just kind of like do all the voices in a haze just so the editor can build it quickly. Like, all right, a giant Furby. OK, that's him. That's a Furby. That's just do the first one. That's fine. Uh, you know, and then whatever. You just kind of go through the whole script. And and there are just a couple voices where, you know, and I actually didn't leave it to me. I was on the mix stage and I was like, look. You guys, you know, this is, you know, because we would always replace me with someone. Um, and then, and then, you know, oftentimes somebody on the mix stage, like Chris or Phil, would just be like, just use you. Just what, what are we doing? Just, it was funny before <laughs> and now it's not funny. I don't know why. Um, there was a, there was a madness in your voice that we're missing. <laughs> um, and, uh, same for Aaron. I mean, Aaron was like, I really didn't want to play Aaron. Um, but basically, just we brought in a lot of like amazing voice actors and actresses that are much better and funnier than me. But there was something about uh, the scratch voice that just like kind of stuck to the screen and was endearing to people and test audiences and stuff. And yeah. um, 
And I think it's because I'm a actual younger brother and my actual older brother and sister left home <laughs> when I was like seven. So yeah. those like residual feelings of vulnerability are still there. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> and um, were you an actual dinosaur guy? I wondered if you ended up playing Aaron because were you that like little dinosaur kid? Because I definitely was that. Yeah. I mean, it was much more Jeff Rowe, who is the co-director and co-writer, who's a genius. He he still knows all the dinosaur names and facts. Like, he's there on point. If you were like, if you said Dilophosaurus wrong, he'd be like, um, actually, <laughs> excuse me. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I did, you know, it's like, I think like any kid, I had sort of like a dino dinosaur phase, you know, but, um, I, but my, my phase, like, I had a cycle of phases that ended like, like, tick, 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 that like ended on animation and, um, just got locked there with an iron grip. <laughs> I've been sort of like, I decided when I was nine that like, Cartoon, cartoon should be the most important thing in my life, and I, for some reason, never questioned that decision. <laughs> so, what were you watching when you were nine? What was what were the things that locked you into this path? Um, it was mostly uh, the Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy, like very nineties, you know, kid stuff. But um, but also, you know, like uh, Studio Ghibli movies and and that sort of thing. Like, I was just, I'm still really enraptured by the possibilities of animation. And it was so exciting to be able to play with those in this movie and like actually experiment, you know, because um, mm. that was like an intention of ours, but I didn't think we we're actually going to be able to pull it off. <laughs> and it was it was really cool that we were able to to really try to do some different things with the movie. And in terms of that, because the the movie is so, I, I loved your the animation style and this and the techniques that you guys are using. But and obviously you have you have Phil and Chris who have who've been there before and they keep pushing the envelope and what they did with this movie and with, with Spider-Verse is, is, is extraordinary. But, uh, you know, you're still in a world, I think, most mainstream big budget animation feels like it's, you know, there's a template. There's a template yeah. to animate. And sometimes, you know, did you get pushback at any point about being this experimental and, and, and being this bold? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was like, I mean, not for, for not for good reason. You know, yeah. people were just like, look, we're trying, you know, we like the movie. We want it to be done on time. <laughs> and we're like, now <laughs> um, <laughs> we want it to take forever and look crazy. Um, so and we did. Um, but uh, no, it was it was basically like, um, you know, that's the standard. That's what the computer does well. And that's like easy and cheap and and sort of going along to get along. And we were trying to push that as as hard as we could, you know, but like we were new. It was like me and Lindsay Oliveira is our production designer. Um, we had this idea that it should be it should all feel handmade and all feel really human because it's a movie about humans and their flaws. And we wanted that like humanity reflected mm. in every frame. And that was like our mission statement. And it was all well and good, but it was just, it was really hard and we were nudging at it a little bit. But the, the amazing thing was then it was like we all of a sudden Spider-Verse wrapped and like we inherited the 95 bulls and it's like, oh, hey, all of a sudden you've got Jordan and Rodman and Pippen go nuts. And they were all beaked up from Spider-Verse. They're like, what? Oh yeah, we could push this way further, and we were like, "Yes!" Um, we were so happy. Sorry, I'm screaming. Uh, but, no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a giant Furby in you again, yeah, just exactly. just coming to the fore, coming out a little bit. But um, but we were so excited, and and they were so game. And then also, Chris and Phil were awesome because they were like, you know, even with the Spider Verse guys, we were pushing it further, you know. And then 
and we got it to a place where we're like, this is really different. And, you know, and, and Kristen Felsant and they were like, it should look like exactly like the stuff you guys love. Like you're, you guys are like edging towards it, but like, let's dive in. And it was so cool to have that permission. Cause then we were like, there were so many times in the movie where I, I you know, the scene in Blazing Saddles where Cleavon Little has a gun to his own head. Yes. He's like, don't make me do it. And I was like, Chris and Phil, they're making me. Oh, God, I wish, you know, I'm on your side. Like, I want to be reasonable. It's all good. But these guys are nuts. They want the movie to look loco. Um, <laughs> the famously tyrannical Lord of Miller. Yeah, exactly. They're the sweetest guys <laughs> in the world. Um, but they do, you know, but they, they do have really high standards, which is great. And it yeah. sort of forces everyone to like up their game a little bit so it was it was awesome to have that permission from them and permission from the world because spider-verse was like so well received yeah i wanted to ask about that was there a sense from the studio and just the audience reaction as well to spider-verse has been huge in the last couple of years that like people are ready for new styles of animation and new flavors did it feel kind of an exciting thing to be coming out in the wake of that movie with the appetite that it's created for kind of yeah a different flavor of animation absolutely i mean because that was our theory you know, going into the movie and we're like, people want to see things that are different. And they're like, all right, Junior, just you've never made one of these before. Go, let's go sit in the corner. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh. Um, but <laughs> it was so validating to see. You know, I remember I saw Spider-Verse in my office because I missed a screening because I was, you know, an edit or whatever. And I just sort of like watched the screening and like my hair was on fire at the end. I was like, oh, my God, they've done it. Um, because it, it was so good and it was like so reflective of all these conversations that animators have been having for years where they're like, why did movies, they all look like they're made out of bars of soap, you know? <laughs> and like, uh, you know, it's like animators are real jerky, <laughs> but, um, but it was so cool to see somebody like really going for it. And it feels, it also feels funny cause it's like, it feels like they skipped a step. Like where was the movie that like led to Spider-Verse? And it's like, no, no, no. They just went from zero to a hundred. And it was cool to be able to try to live up to that because, you know, I I feel like people like thrive in a situation where there's like really high standards. So um, it was it was really exciting for us, even though it was like terrifying. I kept thinking of the <laughs> the like Simpsons episode where Sideshow Bob is like big shoes to fill big shoes. I would like walk around the office, like thinking that in my head, like this, this we're never going to live up to this. This is a masterpiece. What have we done? Uh, but it was cool. With that as well, we're about to go into a, a spoiler special where we can discuss the film in detail. But uh, one of the things that this has in common with, with I, I'd say, Spider-Verse and uh, with even the, the Lego movie, if we're going back to you know Phil and Chris's yeah. previous stuff, is there's a real density to the frame. You pack the frame with so much stuff that going on. So this is a, you know, can you talk about that approach, first of all? And, and, and is that to entice people back for second, third, fourth, fifth viewing so they can see the things in the background that you missed the first 500 times? Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of like a, that that is like, I would say, you know, Kristen Fell really encouraged that stuff, but I will say that that is something that we always believe from the beginning, just because, you know, for me watching The Simpsons as a kid, yeah. I loved it when you could pause the screen and see 50 jokes, you know, and when I was, I was, I worked on the show Gravity Falls on the Disney Channel and stuff, and like, I would write, some of the most rewarding times I ever had on that show was when I would write some psychotic copy that was on the frame for like one second and people would find it and put it on the internet and stuff. And it was like, it was so fun because it, it, it just tells the audience that like, oh, we love this movie and we care about it and we want to fill it with as much stuff as possible. And the art team was also so great 
that like I felt like sometimes I was like um the you know Jordan Peele in the Gremlins 2 skit or whatever where I'm like it's in the movie oh you got a crazy <laughs> puppet it's in the movie um cuz it was like cuz they had great ideas and 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 I was like well let's just jam them all in there yeah the world to save oh no that's a, that's a spoiler that's a spoiler and he went to spoilers and I got confused Mike I got confused I forgot which podcast we were doing um, one thing I think we can talk about that's not a spoiler is uh, Katie the lead character in the movie has a Mount Rushmore of filmmakers yes and uh, and someone very helpfully this week has posed it as the question for us the pod team so thank you for that because um, it's a cracking question and uh, Katie's how much does Katie's Mount Rushmore of filmmakers align with your Mount Rushmore filmmakers. It's super close. I mean, um, Hal Ashby is definitely on there for me. And like, I love all, I love all of those people like Greta Gerwig, Celine Sciamma, uh, Lynn Ramsey. Like I, those are like some of my favorites. I mean, like Hal Ashby is like the biggest face on mine, I would say, but you know, it's like, I might, I might sort of throw on some animators like, um, you know, Miyazaki or whatever. Um, but, but that's pretty close. I mean, I, I think all those filmmakers are, like 10 out of 10 amazing where did that idea come from i think it 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 came from i think just sort of like a that we always were trying to tap into that like psychotic teenage grandiosity (laughs) that we might have had you know um but um but like where it's like oh you know because i remember when i was a kid i would always like look at directors and then like google their ages and be like okay they made that when they were 17 man, I'm 17. I haven't made anything. (laughs) So, and like, I do think that like you try to imagine yourself as, as doing the great things that your heroes do and, and sort of wanting to aspire to that. So we were sort of just trying to tap into that energy um, and the energy that we remembered having when we were like teenage filmmaking losers. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) The film really does have that energy. I think through Katie, that this is like also, it's a film for everybody, but it is also a film for film nerds. Yeah. Um, did you feel like that kid growing up where you were like, I, I am taking everything in, I'm absorbing all of these influences and I just want to burst it out into my own stuff and, and just create? Ab- absolutely. I mean, at li- speaking of Empire, I asked my mom, I was like, could I get a subscription to this British film magazine? She's like, no. <laughs> like your aunt Patricia has an Entertainment Weekly subscription. You'll get them three weeks later, and I'm like Entertainment Weekly. Um, but you know, um, it's just fine. But it was better than nothing. Uh, but but no, I was a total film nerd. You know, like I I would I remember what I watched the movie Bottle Rocket every night for one entire summer. And I was like, I'm going to watch it every single night. <laughs> and like, I told Mark Mothersbaugh that he's like, why, why did you do that? It's <laughs> like, it's a good movie, but don't do that. <laughs> um, so I, I had sort of similar, you know, and it's like, I love film and I, I, you know, was always like watching Criterion Collection movies and just like trying, okay, what is the seventh seal? I'm really going to get into this. Come on, you know, uh, and it was. <laughs> And it was so, and it was like, you know, I tried to watch everything and I tried to appreciate everything and learn from everything. Um, So I also just wanted, you know, film nerd kids to be like, you know, oh yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) And the the last thing I'm going to ask you, Mike, before we we spiral into the the spoiler section, not for spiral, by the way, that's a different spoiler special. Um, (laughs) We we could talk about spiral. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yeah, that's that's, that's spoil a movie that I'm guessing two of us haven't seen for a good 40 minutes. Just talk about it. This movie has, you know, the Mitchells vs. Machines has such an incredible reaction and it's been out now week and a half, two weeks, something like that. And, um, you know, what's it been like for you the last couple of, couple of weeks? 
it's wild. I mean, you know, because we like the movie, you know, I, I, I mean, the biggest thing that I was worried about was like the crew is so great and they put so much of their like time and heart and love into it that I just I felt like we won when the crew was like, hey, we like the movie. We're not embarrassed by it. <laughs> um, so like the fact that people love it and it's getting good reviews is so incredibly gratifying, especially considering we've been working on it for years so it, it just, you know, you feel like you're going insane working on this thing because you're like, is this movie even real? Is it going to get canceled? Will it be released? <laughs> you know, it's like it's a lot of weird stuff in it. They shouldn't release this. Right. You know, um, but um, but no, the, I mean, the fact that like especially it really, really touches me that that people because like we had a sort of, you know, crazed mission statement when we started the movie, which was like. You know, we want to bring families together. And, you know, if if if, uh, you know, if we could make this movie and if a you know parent can call a child or a child can apologize to their parents or whatever, like that will be a win. And it's been really cool to see people actually sending us messages and like, oh, you know, I apologize to my dad or my my mom called me after she watched this movie or whatever. It's like been incredible. I paused my plan to take over the world because I saw this movie and decided not to, not to do it. Yeah, yeah we haven't yeah. had any calls from, from Zuck yet, but we're still waiting. <laughs> yeah, he knows your number. He knows your number, believe me. Uh, well, Mike, we're going we're gonna to go into the, uh, the spoiler special section now, but uh, thanks very much indeed, Mike Rianda. Thank you. All right, so that's Mike Rianda, the director of The Mitchells vs. Machines, which is out right now on Netflix. And as I said before, if you fancy learning more about that movie and digging into it and its creative process, then Mike was kind enough to do a spoiler special interview with us as well. And that is available on our spoiler special subscription channel. Go to my pinned tweet for details how to subscribe. The water is lovely. Why not leap in? Okay, time to talk about this week's movie news. And I think the only place to start is with the news that Ryan Johnson is beginning to populate the cast of Knives Out 2. Daniel Craig was already on board as Benoit Blanc, of course. And he's populating the cast with some very, very exciting popples. So we have Dave Bautista. Woo! We have Ed Norton. Sorry. Edward Norton. Sorry, Woo. Edward Norton word. <laughs> we have Janelle Monet. Woohoo! Mm. And given that they've announced someone every single day this week, or someone's been confirmed at least every single day this week, I would imagine by the time you're listening to this, someone else equally fucking cool has been announced for the cast of this movie. Someone like Catherine Han. Catherine Han. Nailed it. They'll never know that was an overdub. Who is playing the cable knit sweater? <laughs> that's Abercrombie Fitch ah. I'm seeing I don't know I'm seeing Angela Bassett I'm seeing who else who else Michelle Yeoh that'd mm -hmm. be cool mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe he, he'd, he'd work mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe yeah he'd be a good shout he would look good in a cable knit sweater he would yeah Very but they all man. would they all would these are not unattractive people uh, in in this movie, uh, but yeah, obviously we know nothing about Knives Out Two apart from yeah. the fact that it will be shot in and set in Greece. Greece is the word for Ryan Johnson, <laughs> and uh, but this is a hell of a cast. I'm mm. excited. Will it be called Knives In or Two Knives Out? Two <laughs> knives, two out. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> two knives, two out. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I, I hope that they work Benoit Blanc into the title somehow. 
Gross, Gross Point, Point Blanc. Blanc. There, there we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Both leapt on the first base, Jack. <laughs> Oh, my God. Ladies and gentlemen, I refer you to the Rushmore joke. <laughs> hey, I didn't make that. Like, give me some credit. Yeah, yeah. I deserve no credit. Um, you, if there's a lazy joke to be had, I am all over it. <laughs> I was waiting for the Wes Anderson thing, but fair play to you. You went, you went full concept uh, with that one. Um, so you said Wes Anderson and who else? You said Owen Wilson. Uh, no, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman and Brian Cox. And you said they've all directed. They have all directed. Would you like? Okay, here's our bonus round. Would you like to guess what they have directed? No, <laughs> Helen. No, I really wouldn't. God, no, I'm sorry. so weary. Um, uh, come on, let's well, start no, with Jesse okay, Bill Murray. Bill Murray, as we all know, co-directed the 1990 uh, comedy Quick Change with mm. Howard. Uh, Howard Franklin. I want to say Howard Franklin. He co-directed it. That's his only directorial credit. Okay. Brian Cox directed what? An episode of Oz. He directed an episode of Oz back in yes, That's a good show. That's a good yeah, show. So I can't, I can't be mad at you. I can't be no, mad at you and I can't be mad no, at him. No, you can probably be mad at him. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Jason right. Schwartzman, Jason mm-hmm. Schwartzman, directed an episode of Mozart in the Jungle in 2015. Mm. If you direct an episode of a TV show nobody watches, does it technically exist? Or is this like Schrodinger's TV show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched at least a s- two seasons, maybe even three. I don't know. But it was kind of fun. Did Mozart ever make it to the jungle? Let's say yes. Okay. So, Knives Out 2. Uh, it's a fantastic cast so far. I'm saying Brian Cox might be a good addition to this as well. Mm. Or Jason Schwartzman. Or Jason Schwartzman. Or Wes Anderson. Or, okay, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so it's exciting. Can't wait for this. Um, and that's a big old sequel we're very, very excited about. And speaking of big old sequels we're very, very excited about, the trailer for Phenom, Let Phenom, There Be Phenom. Carnage, hit Phenom, this Phenom, week. Phenom. Did. Yeah. And uh, features Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock and Fenham going about their business, going about their lives, living lives, hmm. living life on, you know, just happy, 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 happy. And then, uh-oh, along oh, no. comes Woody Harrelson in a terrible wig, and he's going to play Less Cletus than Cassidy. Last time. Yes, this is true. Woody Harrelson's playing Cletus Cassidy, who mm. in the comics is Carnage, who is another one of those alien symbiotes who's even more vicious and aggressive and evil than Phenom <gasps> was initially before people started liking him. He became an anti-hero rather than a, a bad guy, uh, which has never really happened with Carnage. Now, I, I, I've always felt Carnage is, is A, excessively dull as a character, <laughs> and B, doesn't really fit in with the Spider-Man world. So maybe it'll work here where there is no Spider-Man. He's a mm. bit too maniacal and psychopathic to be a Spider-Man villain f- for me. I've never really gelled with that character, but mm. might make sense in the context of this world. What do you make of the trailer? Um. Okay. <laughs> no, look. I, really? I, okay. So I re- weirdly enough, I had just rewatched Venom at the weekend. Venom, Venom, Venom. Venom. Uh, at the weekend, and it was viewed entirely as a comedy and not as a superhero movie. Mm. Um, it was more fun. Than I remembered, still not good, but more fun than I remembered. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I kind of went into this this sequel with warmer feelings uh, than I maybe expected to. And I'm, yeah, I mean, look, it's a f- big improvement on the hair in the fr- in the 
you know, credit scene in the first trailer for, for Woody Harrelson, which is just some of the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. I still have very little idea what the actual plot of this one is, but like, sure, fine, whatever, you know, more Venom, whatever. I, he's not my favorite character to begin with, but, um, mm. you know, it could be amusing again, I guess. Uh, yeah, sure. The plot, as far as I can tell of this movie, which is directed by Andy Serkis, Yes. As far as I can tell from the trailer, which seemed to be mainly focusing on all the comedy japes of mm. Venom living inside Eddie Brock's body and wanting to eat and kill everything around him. And Eddie Brock's Hi, like, Eddie. oh, Hi, don't, Venom. don't do that. Don't do yeah. that. Ah, ha, ha. Ah. Uh, and making breakfast and all that sort of stuff is that he is connected to Cletus Cassidy in some way. He's helped put him away. They have a connection going back. Obviously now, do people know, I presume, that he's Venom, so he has a symbiote, so presumably Cletus Cassidy's trying to get hold of the symbiote in some way and he succeeds, or he's been atta- he's been approached by another symbiote because the first movie, if you remember, oh God, uh, there were different symbiotes knocking around, so maybe one of those is bonded with Cletus Cassidy and then he's going to become Carnage and then Venom must stop the Carnage. That's yeah. the PG-13 Carnage. That's what yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I feel like we did a lot of that. Oh, they're they're an odd couple last mm. time, but it, it it I guess it was the bits that worked better. So I suppose leaning into that is no bad thing. But I I do want to see a little bit of um. <laughs> can we have like evolution a little bit of the character and their relationship? Helen, as long okay? as there's a tank full of lobsters, I'm in. <laughs> a bigger tank this time, presumably. With more lobsters. Going to need a bigger tank. <laughs> wow. Uh, so you weren't you weren't that jazzed about it because uh, people seem to be quite up. Yeah, on it. people were super up on it. Uh, look, I can see why it, it looks fun. I think, and there seems to have been this re- weird reassessment that Venom was great, no. which again it, it wasn't. It was you know entertaining at times, but like it, it's still a weird, weird film, and not necessarily always in a successful way. This is happening quite a bit recently. I don't know if you you guys noticed this, but there's there's been some sort of movement on film Twitter to re- reinvent movies that didn't do very well when they came out as kind of mini overlooked masterpieces. Skull Island, for example, whenever Godzilla vs. Kong, people were falling over mm-hmm. themselves to go, ah, how you slept on Skull Island. Look how incredible it is. And really? Really? There's really? some good stuff in it. Yeah, there's some good stuff. I'm not saying it's a terrible film. Yeah. Same with Venom. You know, Venom is actually better than I expected it. It was going to be. Mm. But it's not an overlooked minor masterpiece. Yeah. I it's say. not a terrible film. It's one of these odd things, isn't it? Like it did really, it did well disproportionately to how, you know, good it was. Mm. The, the thing with the sequel, I, I didn't love the trailer. I didn't. There's something about the, the sort of humour in this, that, that like the action, the humour, everything about this film, and it, this could just be me, but it feels pitched at a very specific kind of, frat boy dude bro bro mentality and i don't know what but that's just how it kind of sits with me and i just there's something a bit just puerile about it that rubs me up the wrong way so it could just be that this just is not for me puerile you say i'm (laughs) yes this is just may well be aimed so squarely at chris so um i think andy circus is great and i'm obviously encouraged that he's doing this it's Mm. just what he's able to do within the confines of making a venom film can i just shock you I like Venom, despite what I said earlier. <laughs> yeah. So Venom, that wasn't the trailer that got people excited this week. That wasn't the trailer that had people going, oh my God, oh my God, I need to see this film immediately. What was, Chris? Do you know what it was, Jimbo? Was it Green Knight? It was the Green Knight. 
It was the Green Knight, David Lowry's The mm. Green Knight, uh, which looks absolutely bonkers, mm. but in the most brilliant way. I'm very, very here for it. Yes. What, what do you know about The Green Knight? What can you tell us about The Green Knight? Uh, so it's uh, based very loosely, I suspect, on the Arthurian legend um, and uh, stars Dev Patel as... And an axe. And an And axe. a fox. <laughs> yes, and a tree man and a king and a queen and some other and words. Horses and a man on fire and they killed a guy with a trident. Uh, yeah, so it, it is based on the legend. I, I'm... I'm I'm sort of need to brush up on my Arthurian mythology, mm. but basically the Green Knight comes in, challenges the court, says, you know, somebody gets to hit me now, and I'll hit him later. Sir Gawain volunteers, that would be Dev Patel, and hits the Green Knight, who basically is unfazed by having his head chopped off, and and then he has to go and get hit later. Basically, is the big I, sort my of understanding of fights is this is not how they work. Well, I mean, have you fought many tree men? No. I mean, so, you know, fair. have some respect for their traditions. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I ain't having any of that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be uh, weird and interesting. The fact that Sean Harris is playing the king is instantly like, wait, where are we what is happening? But he's yeah. the bad guy. He's always the bad guy. Or he loves rocks. You know, whatever what or other. He loves he loves torturing Ethan Hunt and rocks and that's that's what we know about Sean Harris. Uh, yeah, wonderful actor. We don't mean any disrespect. No, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, yeah, this look, this looks terrific. I, I thought it looked um, really dark and bold and funny and inventive and really visually pushing the envelope uh, mm. as well. I love David Lowry. Um, he's got the best tash and direction. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to put David Lowry on my Mount Rushmore just because that tash <laughs> wow. deserves to be forty feet wide. Wow, that is a. I mean, so he would be he would be replacing the no no Teddy no Roosevelt fifth head then. fifth head. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> I was just going to put him in the Teddy Roosevelt place of having an enormous moustache. Oh right, yes. I thought I thought you meant like okay. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, okay. But it's purely for the moustache. I must say that I'm putting them on Mount Rushmore. I I really like him as a director. I think he's done some fantastic work. Indian Body Saints and Pete's Dragon and A Ghost Story and all the good stuff. This looks like it has the potential to be the movie that kind of breaks him out into. Well, I'm not going to say mainstream because I get the feeling this film's going to be weird as fuck. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, and it, it it may be really weird, which would be very David Lowry. But this might be the movie that really kind of there's there's a lot of untapped potential in him, I think, and uh, this could be the one to push him over the top. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, mixed on him. I I did not like a ghost story. I really, really didn't like it. But I loved uh, Pete's Dragon and. Uh, liked Ain't Them Body Saints, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of fifty fifty on it. The old man, the gun was really fun. Oh my god, yeah, I forgot about that. Okay, yeah, he's back so, on, he's back on the mountain again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm a bit fifty fifty on him, but I am, I'm very much here for this because it looks like a cool cast and interesting group of people, and uh, yeah, funky concept. So fingers crossed. Funky concept, just like the Mar from Film Academy. Right about now, you're fifty fifty. <laughs> we should talk. About We don't like to talk about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the Golden Globes very much in the podcast. We tend to give a short shrift uh, and about as much shrift as it deserves, which is increasingly short as the years go on. However, there seems to be some sort of reckoning happening over in the States at the moment with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the worst press association. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, it's really, really happening, folks. The Golden yeah. Globes, next year's Golden Globes, has been cancelled. 
So it's really, really not happening, folks. It's, really yeah. not happening. <laughs> it's actually not happening. The NBC, who have screened the Golden Globes over the last few years, have cancelled the Golden Globes next year mm. because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association have come under a lot of uh, heavy attack uh, over the last few years for their lack of diversity and their lack of representation in their 90-strong body. They said that they were going to, they have implemented plans to increase the diversity uh, but it's going to take them a little bit of time to do so. It's going to take them a roughly 18 months to two years. And uh, this has not gone down well in Hollywood, uh, which has said, no, you've got to change faster. Yeah. And and more so because they were only offering to bring in about 50% as many people, uh, which, of course, would, would still leave a majority of the current members as a majority. Um, so so yeah. that was also a sticking point, I think, for the studios, for the publicists who work with them. And, and for Tom for Cruise. NBC. And for Tom Cruise, who has who returned, returned all three of his Golden Globes, uh, yeah. presumably by jumping out of a plane on a motorbike <laughs> and uh, <laughs> dropping them off around at the HFBA. Uh, yeah, he returned his awards for uh, Jerry Maguire, Magnolia and Bourne on the 4th of July. Fair play to him. Fair yeah. play to him indeed. Yeah, Scarlett Johansson also spoke out about the yeah. sexism uh, inherent in many of their questions. I mean, look, some of us have been on you know, junkets with some of these people, we would not be entirely I mean, surprised to to hear that they ask sexist questions. Of or stars. indeed insane ones, but uh, yes. So Golden Globes isn't happening next year, or actually to clarify on that, because it's more likely that it won't happen next year, the broadcast has been cancelled by NBC, and it seems unlikely that the HFPA are going to go ahead with the ceremony, because if they can't show it anywhere and no one's going to turn up, then what's the point? And you'd be surprised if it came back. But it's, I mean, this is the second most prestigious movie award ceremony after the Oscars, isn't it, really? Much as it galls me to say, it kind of is. Mm. Um, I've never understood why, but it is. I think it's because they said it was. Yeah. It's also the calibre of guests I think they get. It's a very, very starry event, which I think has, has led to its to its profile. But as you say, it's like, I mean, it's a joke. And the, some of it, frankly, some of the things that get, their choices are baffling again on account i think partly of how their their judging panel is made up but it's it's every year it's the same thing where we we're wringing our hands just shaking our heads and trying to work out what they were thinking at any given point like the tourist emily, I mean, emily in paris yeah I, I look i think there's there's a lot of different problems that the organization faces but certainly the appearance of uh favoritism to, to shows or films that have invited them on cushy junkets has not helped their cause yeah i think in this respect and uh uh, yeah, that that is a thing that is happening. So this is, I mean, I don't know what we, what we can say about this. This may be an opportunity for the BAFTAs to increase its profile, which may now sort of find its prestige enhanced uh, and its uh, its chance to be broadcast in America maybe also enhanced. There may also be a, an opening now for a critics association or other critics associations to step up and um, step into the breach. Um, so I, I imagine there are some talks going on behind the scenes to replace the Globes with something else, but it remains to be seen what that will be. Mm. So Regina King is going to direct her second movie uh, after One Night in Miami, and it's going to be called Bitter Root, and it's an adaptation of an image comic book series created by David F. Walker, Sanford Green, and Chuck Brown. And it is a big old supernatural horror thing. Sounds Ooh. pretty cool. So it's set in 1924 during the Harlem Renaissance, and it's about a family of monster hunters 
who have to face off against a an unimaginable evil, it says here, that descends upon New York City. So that mm-hmm. sounds cool. So they're basically like Supernatural in Harlem? <laughs> yes, cool. that's basically yeah. what it is. Sounds like one night in New York, so I'm I'm bang up for that. Except with more monster hunting than there was in one night in Miami. That was it was disappointing in that one way. You're right. It cost it its fifth star, if you ask me. But yeah, that's exciting. So that's really cool. Well, yeah, well done, Regina King, uh, who I thought did a great job on one night in Miami, and Idris Elba is going to star in an action movie for Sam Hargrave, who's the director of Extraction, who I think is about to start filming on Extraction 2. But after that, he's lined up a film called Stay Frosty, and it's going to star Idris Elba as a... (laughs) A man who miraculously survives a bullet wound to the head, has to figure out who wants him dead and why, and stop the assassin while still making it home in time for Christmas. Sounds good to me. I'm so here for this. Oh, I can cover it on my humbug and everything. There you go. This will be amazing. Sounds like, you know, it could be, it could be Shane Black movie without the Shane Black. So, yeah, excited about that. Idris Elba to star in Sam Hargrave's Stay Frosty. The next news took me aback a little, because I'm not sure how I feel about this. So hmm. people will know that I've been pretty consistent in my position on movies about the pandemic and the situation in which we find ourselves since the beginning of the pandemic, which is, don't do I know it. they're going to come, but please don't. Please don't do it. I don't want to see a recreation of this misery-filled hellscape that we've all been living through. I just don't want to see it. There is no director or pair of directors who would make me reconsider that. Except maybe Lord and Miller. And that's Hmm. why I'm a bit torn about this. So they have announced their next project as live-action directors, and it's going to be The Premonition, which is about the early days of the pandemic. And every fibre of me is going, don't do it. This is a terrible idea. But then every fibre of my being was screaming, don't do it with the 21 and 22 Jump Street movies. Mm. And every fibre of my being was screaming, don't do it with a Lego movie. And every fibre of my being was screaming, don't do it with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And these guys have a tendency to take ideas that sound terrible on paper and make them not terrible in practice. Yeah. And this one isn't just about everybody staying home and going on Zoom. Um, it's about three characters in the White House, a biochemist, a public health worker, and a federal government employee who are trying to sign the alarm, (laughs) walk into a bar and instantly go, oh dear, no, we shouldn't be in an enclosed space. Are you kidding me? Uh, Anyway, they're trying to sign the alarm and get the officials to take it seriously. And uh, sadly, given the, you know, uh, officials in charge at the time are having no luck with that. So this Mm. could be a sort of, you know, it could be Lord Miller's big short. Maybe. Like, so I don't mind pandemic films if, like, the pandemic is the backdrop to the film. Like, Host. Host is a brilliant film which used the pandemic as a kind of device, but it wasn't the thrust of it. I'm not sure a dramatic recreation of the, you know, bureaucratic fuckery around this event <laughs> is something I really want to sit through, since we are still sitting through the bureaucratic fuckery. Maybe it, it could it could be cleverly done, maybe. I mean, there, there has been, there have been a couple of decent pandemic things, right? That, ra- was it Raven's Quest? Episode one, call that yeah, one on Apple. Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was <laughs> Mythic genuinely, Quest, Raven's Mythic Banquet. Quest, Mythic yeah. Quest did they a did really, an really good pandemic episode. Yeah. Mm. That got me in the feels, as the kids say. They don't mm. say that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, the, I, I, I hope for the best. I'm with you, Chris, and having thought all of their previous films were bad ideas, including Solo. Um, and uh, I was only right about one of them. So hey, know. Solo might have been great with them in charge. Might have been. I, I still feel that you know they might have. Maybe they should have. Kept them on board, you know. Mm, but Solo, maybe. that's another movie that has been 
kind of rebranded by film Twitter over the last few years. And now people are going, it's a, it's fantastic. And you should check Solo out. And it's actually one of the best Star Wars movies. And there should be uh, many, many Solo movies. Which seems like an oxymoron, but, <laughs> but there you go. Um, but yeah, sounds exciting to me in theory, potentially. Potentially in theory because of, of who they are and their track record. They're great. So I, I might watch this movie. <laughs> Norman Lloyd, the great Norman Lloyd who was the world's oldest living actor, has passed away at the age of 106. 106. That is a hell of an innings, folks. Yeah. And he was working until, what, five years ago? So he worked north of 100. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was in train wreck. Yeah, so um, to go from, you know, Alfred Hitchcock to <laughs> to mm. Judd Apatow, that's a, that's a long career run. He He's... Yeah, he was incredible. He, he, you know, worked with Orson Welles. He worked with Hitchcock. He worked with kind of everybody. Yeah, it's amazing. He was in Star Trek: The Next Generation, guys. Well, come what on. What more do you need? What more do you need? So yeah, I mean, just by any standards, I think that's a that's a life well lived. Um, he he had an extraordinary career. He um had an incredible work on TV as well, uh, uh, directing as well as acting. Mm-hmm. You know, did a lot of was Alfred Hitchcock presents. I think was his start in TV, and then he went on to do Tales of the Unexpected. If you remember that from the eighties, directed an episode of Columbo. Direct, oh, well, there mm-hmm. you go. Was also in Dead Poets Society mm-hmm. and The Age of mm-hmm. Innocence. In her shoes, yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, so I'm just on his IMDb trivia page, and he was married for like seventy some years. What a guy, seventy five years. What a what a what a dude. What a legend. His hobbies included golfing, dining, tennis, punching ball, playing chess, traveling, dancing, and watching movies. I mean, there you so go. That's pretty much that's pretty much the dream right there. The dream right there. Yeah, his last movie was Trainwreck. He was also in Curtis Hanson's In Her Shoes. Great movie. Uh, yeah, and really it, it, that got me morbidly thinking about the fact that he'd outlived Curtis Hanson, which is which is oh. like how many directors he must have outlived in in his in his career. But he was still giving interviews around the time of Trainwreck. Yeah. And uh, he was a great raconteur. So if you just look for Norman Lloyd interviews, the man had a steel trap of a memory. So uh, he was he was full of anecdotes. And, uh, and it's very, very sad. 106. Wow. We should all be so lucky. Norman Lloyd, who passed away this week at the age of 106. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio is unrecognisable, apparently. Unrecognisable. The first, the I, I, still, still. I look at the photo now. I've got it in front of me. And where is he? I can't make out where is he the wallpaper like where oh, where is Lord. he in the picture it's unclear to me yeah the first the first pick from martin scorsese's uh killers of the flower moon and scorsese by the way very very close to be on my mount rushmore but mm-hmm. ultimately he didn't direct dark man and so i had to knock points off <laughs> oh my god <laughs> wow I mean, film twitter fair. just took away your well right i just realized that none of us put scorsese on our list and like <laughs> some of us had more than four directors on our i put i put <laughs> david lowry on my mount rushmore because he's a cracking tash yeah. so that's, maybe that's, i should reconsider fine. that but i i can't put scorsese above john carpenter i just can't john carpenter means more to me John Woo means more to me. It's like, it, it, they mean more to me. I love Scorsese, but I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it, I tells you. I can't. Stop trying to hold my feet to the flames. Jesus Christ. Anyway, so Leonardo DiCaprio is in his new movie. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. It's epic. It's huge. It's fast. And the I mean, first... I mean, and, it's not and that big. Evident, well, the budget would argue otherwise. And I know. Evidently, this week, the first image came out with him and... Lily Gladstone, who is playing his wife in the movie, 
And I think it was the New York Post when Leonardo DiCaprio was unrecognizable in the first image from Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's like, no, 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 no. Lily James is unrecognizable in the first picture from Pam and Tommy, the TV show that she's shooting right now, because she looks exactly like Pamela Anderson and not like Lily James. Leonardo DiCaprio looks like Leonardo fucking DiCaprio. Yeah, he Ergo, does. Ergo, he's not unrecognizable. But hey-ho, who am I to tell you to do your job? Yeah, I do think Lily, uh, yeah, we've had this conversation on one of the spoilers, yeah. but Lily James is clearly not in that TV show. That is not yeah. Lily James. It's definitely Pamela Anderson. I know what mm-hmm. they look like. Come on, <laughs> stop trying to fool us. Uh, but yeah, this uh, look, this is the first image. It's a film I'm really excited about. I've read the book and I loved it. I still don't understand where the money's going, but I look forward to finding out. It's going on the CG for Leonardo DiCaprio. That's what's going. Uh, sure. Okay, cool. So that's that's something that's happened as well. And something that is happening right now is that the new issue of Empire Magazine is on sale as we speak in all good and evil news agents. It has hit the stands, both real and as of, well, as of now, you can go into a WH Smith or a news agent and pick it up and flick through his pages and hopefully you don't get a paper cut. Oh, glorious, glorious things. But you can also buy it virtually also. Uh, and the cover is pretty special, folks. We have had a hell of a run of world-exclusive covers of the, over the last few months. And uh, this is right up there with them because this is a uh, an issue dedicated to uh, cinema and to saving cinema and to saving the concept of cinema and the reality of cinema as well because, quite frankly, we love cinema and we love cinemas. Uh, so as a result of that, we have a... a young up-and-comer called Tom Cruise on the cover exclusively for Empire, talking to us in a world exclusive about how he and Chris McQuarrie and the whole team on Mission Impossible 7 and Top Gun Maverick and you know Paramount, the studio, and, and all of Hollywood, in fact, are marshalling to try and stave off the threat of COVID-19 and keep movies going, especially you know, big movies like this that have thousands of people on the payroll. Uh, and are responsible for putting bums on seats in movie theaters and cinemas across the world as well. And so uh, I spoke to Tom Cruise recently. I spoke to him for a, a decent chunk of time. He was on set of Mission Impossible 7 up in Yorkshire. He was, I'm not kidding, throwing himself, uh, <laughs> I think he was jumping between two carriages of a moving train because it was a Wednesday. And that's what Tom Cruise <laughs> does on a Wednesday. And uh, we shot him exclusively for the magazine as well. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting chat talking about the lengths that they've had to go to to get Mission Impossible 7 back on the road again. And I mean back on the road, like going all around the world. And in it, he talks about that batshit insane stunt that you will probably have seen pictures of him doing. And he talked about that stunt where he drives a motorbike off a ramp off a cliff and then had six seconds to deploy his parachute. Otherwise, we would be talking about Tom Cruise in the past tense, folks. It would be Tom, Tom Cruise. Yes. Mm. <laughs> oh, God, we went for the again, obvious joke again. We'll leave it on those obvious jokes. <laughs> no what open goal left unscored. <laughs> it's really, really cool issue. Uh, it's um, I'm not going to say it's a great feature because I wrote it. So obviously it's it's, it's like, you know, that feature, average. It's a great feature, Chris. It's like that, you know, that little toy of the monkey smashing the symbol together. It's basically like that, but only for three and a half thousand words. Yeah. Uh, but there's other stuff inside the issue as well, isn't there, folks? We also have the big screen preview. So that's looking ahead at the big movies that are coming out over the next few months as we get back into cinemas. Uh, so there's stuff in there, you know, Last Night in Soho, Quiet Place Part 2, Shang-Chi, uh, Freaky, you name it. 
Um, we've got a feature on In the Heights, which Ben wrote, that lucky mm. bastard. In the Heights. Fast and Furious 9 with the big exclusive that's gone all around the world this week. Now we're sucking diesel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that Justin Lin's nine-year-old son came up with the magnet plane uh, idea, proving that that old Onion sketch about five-year-old screenwriter uh, of the Fast and Furious movies is 100% accurate, and it really is. Uh, you know, it's tapping into the childlike joy that we all have, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And we have a, a piece on Alan Partridge, and mm-hmm. uh, this, this month's Gods Among Us is Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, oh, yeah. legendary Eddie Murphy. Love him. And we also have uh, a feature on Censor, which is a British horror movie that's coming up very, very soon that is going to rock your world. And uh, Ben Wheatley's In the Earth. Uh, that's not, he's not dead. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying that's the name of the film he's directed. Ben Wheatley, as far as I'm aware, is still very much alive and well and walking around. So on uh, the earth, not yes. in the earth. Cool. Yes. Uh, no Time to Die, that's something Ben Wheatley says when he's walking around and not being dead. Uh, and that's the new Bond film. We also have something on that. And uh, yeah, it's there's loads of great stuff. There's a, as Chris Evans once said, there's a lot of great stuff inside the issue. <laughs> In my section, there is uh, the interview with the Cartoon Saloon guys behind Wolfwalkers, uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. And the latest ranking is the DC Extended Universe, and there are no controversial opinions in that whatsoever. <laughs> so check that oh out. Boy. New issue of Vampire Magazine with Thomas Cruise, May Porter the Fourth, is on sale right now at all good and evil news agents. It is, I have to say, essential, although not compulsory purchase. We're still working on that. We're still working on making this a compulsory purchase, but uh, if you want to pick it up, you can do so. All good and evil news agents. Okay, time now for a second guest this week, and it is Alexandra Aja. Alex Aja, the brilliant French horror director who burst onto the scene all those years ago with the gore-soaked Switchblade romance, or Haute Tension, as they say in French. Mm, yeah, I'll tell you, 435 days in Duolingo in a row. My French is no longer merde. <laughs> oh my God. This has replaced Marvel Puzzle Quest for you, hasn't it? As the thing you can't Don't miss it well, out discourage on. it. That's no, good. No, I'm, I'm That's learning. I've, yeah. I've, the two apps I have on my phone that are getting daily use for me right now are Mar- uh, not Marvel Puzzle Quest. That's long gone. Um, Duolingo, which is teaching me French yes. because it's whenever good. whenever I, you know, we can finally go to Lyon and mm. hang out with our French <laughs> Family, Leon, I can actually Leon's open already take away. You yeah. can't sit down and eat in there, but you can you can get food and take away. Also, they speak English. Leon with a Y, you uncultured light. Why Leon? Well, because Nando's is closed, presumably. <laughs> There's also chess. Um, I'm trying to get back into chess. So I'm. You know, Are you now? Yeah. You're going full Queen's Gambit on us. Uh, I, no. Knights <laughs> no, to Queen at Bishop three. <laughs> I'm fucking terrible at it. Oh, yeah, I'm horrendous. Anyway. Anyway, what was the song about? French, yes. Alex Aja, he burst on the scene with Switchblade Romance, and he directed that really, really cool The Hills of Eyes remake. And over the years, he's made things like Crawl, in which mm. Caius Scodelario was battling against some alligators, Piranha 3D. So he's a gore-soaked dude. He likes to throw a bit of claret around, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But not in his new movie, Oxygen, which is out right now on Netflix and is a compelling and gripping sci-fi thriller starring Melanie Laurent from Inglorious Bastards and, of course, more famously, Now You See Me. Side note, why was a sequel to Now You See Me not called Now You Don't? 
I know. Because they're right? idiots. They're Speaking idiots. of open goals. I know. I mean, have you, if you've seen that sequel, you'll know there were a lot of open goals that were missed <laughs> uh, with the fairly disappointing Now You See Me Too. Such a shame. Such a shame. Speaking of Woody Harrelson in bad wigs. Yeah. I wish hypnotism did work that way, where you just, just brush someone abruptly and stare into their eyes and suddenly they're mesmerized. <laughs> look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. Not around the eyes. Look at my eyes. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I will finish this, this introduction to the guest at some point. Alex Adger... <laughs> His next movie is Oxygen, and it is a bit of a departure for him. It is his return to the French language for the first time since Switchblade Romance, and it is a compelling story about Melanie Laurent's character who wakes up in some sort of weird futuristic cryopod with no memory of who she is or how she got there. And all we know is that her oxygen is running out, and it's a race against time with the aid of Mathieu Almerich's computerized voice, Milo, to help her figure out what the hell is going on and if she can get out of her situation. Uh, I thought it was terrific. We'll talk about this in the reviews section in uh, in a few minutes' time. But for now, I caught up with Alex Aja over Zoom, the Dread Zoom, last week, and we had a merry old time. Here we go. Me talking to Alex Aja. Please do enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the Director of Oxygen, Mr. Alexander Aja. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm very good. Excellent. Where are you in the world at the moment? In Paris. Okay, so is that have you did you retreat there in terms of the pandemic, or have you been back in Paris for a while? Or no, I I was in fact uh, uh, prepping uh, in pre-production of another movie in Canada on on the adaptation of uh, Tomie, the Junji Ito manga, mm-hmm. and everything stopped a few weeks before the shooting because of the pandemic. So I went back in Paris to lock down. and then you know like the opportunity of doing uh, uh, oxygen became like a, more than an opportunity, like a necessity for me. There, there's something about the movie that, that speaks, I think, to the lockdown mentality. It's, it's about, you know, Melanie's character being locked in this, this pod mm-hmm. and there's waves of isolation and what that does to you psychologically. And that feels like it's, it speaks to our times. It was definitely, uh, uh, you know, like the, 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 what happened, to us and and what we went through over the last year was uh, changing the whole uh, read or perspective on that project. And and, and yes, you know, it's about this woman who wakes up in that uh, cryo unit and doesn't know who she is and and doesn't remember anything and doesn't know if she's like buried or if she's still in the hospital. But there is something about, you know, like, the world we're living in right now like the, the there is some kind of and that's not spoiling too much mm. there is some kind of virus out there it's interesting with this movie that you've clearly embraced getting back to work and and working in the middle of a pandemic how was that for you was it difficult from a technical point of view we we thought it would be uh, quite challenging because it was one of the first movie going back to production in france mm-hmm. right after the lockdown so we had to, of course, wear masks and respect uh, distanciation and all the protocol of, uh, you know, being safe and be sure that no one is is getting sick. But there were like a, a really amazing uh, uh, upside as well, and and that upside was that every crew member was also coming out of months of frustration of being uh, locked down. So we we got all that creative uh, uh, juices you know, ready to, to, you know, like come out that 
we use for the movie that everyone was so excited and and passionate about what they were doing so i think we we got the best of everyone making this movie so so tell me how quickly it came together then because you you have been attached to this movie for a while is my understanding as a producer Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I read the script. It's a script from uh, Christy LeBlanc, mm-hmm. who wrote this like a few years ago. The movie, uh, uh, you know, was on the blacklist. And um, and I think like at some point, Anataway Way was going to produce and, and also play in it. And then I read the script without knowing anything about it uh, while I was finishing cutting Crawl. And... You know, I just got completely shocked. I mean, it started with this very situation thriller, super stressful, suspenseful moment of being locked into that box, you know, like the size of a coffin. Mm -hmm. But then the script goes into a really different direction. And and, and that really surprised me and and got me into that most um, existential quest that the movie is offering. So... I knew I wanted to be one way or the other involved in it. And because I was committed to another project, I had to become a producer. So the movie was going to be shot in London, in fact, uh, with Numi Rapaz uh, um, attached mm-hmm. uh, to, 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 play, to play the lead. But with the pandemic, everything stopped and all the independent financier just went down as well. And, and, and so... Not only I stopped my movie in Canada, but this one also was not in the, in the right place. And so back in Paris, we, um, we decided to send the oxygen to Netflix and the new international division. And they loved the project. And they came with this idea of like, why not doing it in French? And why not doing it in France? You know, as soon as you come out of the lockdown and... And that was actually a really interesting approach because it kind of gave me the opportunity of um, maybe exploring uh, the sci-fi in a more mature adult European point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I was giving like a, I think the movie some something a little different. So, yeah. um, so that that was pretty intriguing. Unfortunately, we couldn't walk with Numi anymore and. And so, you know, had to find French uh, actresses to uh, to be Lee's. And uh, I imagine Melanie was pretty high on a very short list for you, or <laughs> how did she that, how that my, happen? She was my number one uh, uh, choice, uh, and I got pretty lucky because she's the first person, and you know, I thought about uh, 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 when the idea of French version came and. When I send her the scripts, usually you have to wait and wait and wait for an actress or an actor to read. And she read it just the time to read the script, meaning like less than two hours. And I couldn't know, but in the same time, her as well, being in that lockdown for so long, made her rethink about the choices that she wanted to, uh, to make and the movie that she wanted to be part of. Mm-hmm. And she was looking at that point for something more, um, you know, like challenging for her, something uh, uh, that will move her in the, in the, in the deepest way and, and, and something that will also have a meaning into the, the time we are like going uh, uh, through. Yeah. So I, th- I think Oxygen was all of this in, in one script. So 
she responded right away. Obviously, the uh, you talk about why the the movie was recalibrated to, into the French language. Was returning to France to shoot a movie in French on your list of things to do at some point? Anyway, you've you've pretty much exclusively worked uh, abroad yeah. since Switchblade Romance. I mean, I I really uh, always wanted to find a, a way to do another uh, French movie. Uh, I had developed a few uh, along the years that didn't happen. Uh, I was not expecting this one <laughs> to, to be the one, but it became very obvious and also like a very important move for me to, 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 to do it like fast because I, I, I feel that the, you know, the, the movie in its, in its team uh, echoes so much of the world around us yeah. right now and the world after the pandemic as well. So it was kind of um, a great, you know, lineup of planets, I would say, <laughs> you know, it was just like, okay, great. It's like everything is falling into places and makes sense. And we're going to do it. And it was strange because uh, uh, Switchblade Romance or even Furia, my first feature mm. that were both in French language, were not shot in France. <laughs> like the first one was shot in Morocco. The second one was shot in, in Romania. So it, it was like, really like the first time that I was doing a feature in France <laughs> and even more where I'm living in Paris. Yes. So, okay, so the first time you've ever had to just get up in the morning and walk to the set and yeah. then you can go home at the end of the day. Yeah. Which is very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say, you know, having followed your career uh, throughout the years and, you know, you are one of the finest proponents of gore in modern horror. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, you throw usually you throw buckets of blood around the place, and this is not that at all. This is there. Are, there are a couple of moments in Oxygen that made me squirm, to do with needles and in, injections, and in, you know things being inserted into bodies. But by and large, this is a, a chance for you to flex a different set of directorial muscles. Was that also a, a, an appeal? I was not necessarily an appeal or even like a, a, a real decision because my approach of uh, go and blood and and shocking images usually, I mean, with the exception, let's say, of Piranha, uh, it's usually uh, motivated by that kind of survival approach of filmmaking. Yeah. Where I, I want to be with my character. And if the character in the stories are... are are witnessing something that's very violent or gory. I want them, you know, I want to show it. Yeah. And I want, I want to, to be able to uh, uh, actually uh, uh, see it with them. So the, the, the level of blood comes from, from that direction. So when mm. I do the story of high tension, yes, it become off Switchblade Romance. It becomes like super uh, gory. The Hills of Eyes, of course. Yeah. But crawl like was not that gory or or, or, no, or, or no. bloody, in fact, because yeah. of the water, because of like the the you know how fast and and gnarly the the alligators can be. Yeah. So it it just like a here I didn't even realize that in fact it was not going to be a, a real all movie to say. Yeah. Uh, until like late in the process, because I saw that yes, it's a it's a sci-fi thriller. It's very suspenseful. There is some real fear of being locked in. There is that, you know, oxygen level that's just going down and, 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 and a very awful death if she doesn't manage to find a way out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
So in terms of that challenge, though, how did you shoot it? Describe, can you describe to me the set that you used? So we built two uh, pods, uh, two, uh, two units, um, fully operational with all the screen. It was very important for me to, you know, like the character of Melanie only spent a few hours in the story in that, uh, in that cryo unit. You know, Melanie had to spend five weeks all day long, you know, locked in and, and with the cable and everything with no way to come out of the pod, you know, very not often because it was a long time to replug her. And, and, and. so we, uh, we had those two pods. Uh, we could move the wall, the top, the bottom, like all around in the beginning was quite time consuming. Then in a couple of days, we became like almost like Formula One experts, <laughs> like changing tire in a in matter of like 10 minutes max. And, and, and that, was, that was great. That was really like, a, you know, like a, a technique and, and kind of a choreography for the whole team and the whole crew to, to, to get there. But I wanted to preserve uh, uh, my um, creative freedom of moving the camera everywhere. And, yeah. and to, you know, I was thinking that, you know, I have like a perfect one location continuity and I had one character who's going through from the first shot to the last shot, be part and be the landscape that I'm going to shoot and it's going to carry all the emotion, you know, the roller coaster of emotion. Yeah. Um, so I can really open the, the, the toolbox and get all the different uh you know, movie technique, all the different style of filming, all the different style of framing, all the different type of lens yeah. and, and really do something that I will never do usually, meaning changing complete style from one scene to the other. If that style just uh, um, improve or underline the emotion that she's going through. And, and, and you don't even feel it, I think, because it's really, um, you know, following her and we are so close. But, you know, we, scene after scene, are just building a different uh, type of filming just to also not repeat ourselves and, and keep, the, keep the audience engaged. So in, in terms of Melanie's performance, that must have really helped as well, dialing her into that psychological headspace. Um, can you talk about the conversations you had with her uh, and how you directed her through this, this process? And also, did you, you know, she has conversations on the phone with, with various people and there is a, an ever-present computer voice, uh, Milo. Uh, and how did you do those live? Were, were, they, were those done live or, or were those added in post? So we, um, you know, like the first thing I told Melanie was, uh, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> and like, I, I want you to realize how difficult it's going to be. Yeah. Like, oh, like those 25 days you're going to spend laying down in that pod are going to be for real. And, and you're going to be, and she said, no, I'm not, I don't have any uh, claustrophobia. I'm fine. I don't have problem with rats either. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was kind of, um, you know, like, but I said, like, remember what I said, it's going to be hard. And, and I said to her, like, also, you should really uh, train. You know, physically, because I think that if you, you know, like, because you have to act so many things in that position, mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot of uh, abs walking and neck tension. And, and it's also the pod are not going to be 
the most comfortable uh, uh, place to race. So you really have to, you know, to find that kind of zen. So she spent weeks and weeks uh, uh, walking out and, 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 you know, it's almost like meditation, like bringing like images from, you know, like landscape that she could bring in her mental, uh, uh, you know, cinema. Mm. And she was locked into that, that, that box for days and days and days. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that was pretty much the, and then the other thing is um, we record the voice of Milo before the shoot mm-hmm. with, you know, Mathieu Marek mm-hmm. was that amazing uh, uh, human, very deep. Oh my God. Yeah. Kind of, kind of voice. What a voice! But we, but we knew that we couldn't use it on set because we wanted to keep that kind of, uh, you know, long take, uh, not improvising, but you know, changing and exchanging. So we had uh, another uh, actor who was in a little shack, you know, like soundproof shack on set, and who was doing all the different voices, and who was only talking to her, her ear. You know, she had like a little. Uh, 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 you know, like something to, to hear me uh-huh. and him. Uh-huh. So it was the three of us, like having a little uh, radio station and, 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 and talking and, and spending the day because she was locked for most of the time inside. She couldn't go back to a trailer or, you know, like we were walking all day long. So that, I think that, that was the only way to make it possible for her. So we were here to entertain her a little bit between the takes Mm-hmm. But also to to have him, uh, uh, you know, like running the line when we were getting all that very complicated like camera move ready. So, oh my god, uh, that, that is a hell of a thing, a hell of a thing. Before you embarked upon this movie, did you go back and look at movies that were in this in this sort of genre in this wheelhouse? I mean, it's it's you know, buried comes to mind. It's of course buried. Buried was. Um, I mean, I love Buried, and, mm. and Buried was one of those movies where I watch it and I say, why I didn't think about it? Why? It was such, like, right there in, 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 in that realm of, like, thing that I love so much. And, and so when I read Oxygen the first time, the fact that it started like Buried was like, oh, great, that may be my opportunity. But I was expecting, I was hoping that the script would go in a different direction to not just redo Buried. Yeah. And he did. So yes. that, was a, that was a good <laughs> one. But yes, Buried was definitely, um, you know, one movie that we were like thinking about. There were like also some, you know, like sci-fi movies, more like European, mm-hmm. more, uh, um, you know, like the, 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 I mean, even if the movie is like in a very near future and set up that hospital setting and, and all that stuff. But, you know, Tarkovsky is someone that kind yeah. of, uh, you know, uh, when they, there were also some exploration of the, 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 the subconscious and that kind of mental uh, maze, uh, you know, like Memento or mm. even, you know, uh, Cube was an, an, another one, you know, that, that kind of uh, echo in me. And maybe some Kedic, um, mm. you know, like Ubik was something that mm. I was, you know, thinking about a lot. On that note, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for taking time thank out of your day to do this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Alexander Thanks. Adja, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Alex Adja. And now let's start the review section of the show by talking about Oxygen, which mm. is out right now on Netflix. Hell's Bells. Yeah, this is really good. And I kind of wasn't expecting this. 
really. I just wasn't expecting, not that I was expecting it to be bad, I just wasn't expecting much of it either way. And it's a sort of sci-fi uh, buried, if you've seen that Ryan Reynolds yeah. film. Mm. It's not a million miles away in terms of plot, but um, it's, if anything, even more effective in terms of tension and, and drama. So as you said, Melanie Laurent wakes up in this pod. It's She's, you know, surrounded by medical equipment. There is this uh, computerized voice, Milo, that is talking to her. So she has some kind of information, but the computer is very constrained in what it is able to tell her and the, the information that it is able to give her. And her own memory has huge gaps in it. So she doesn't quite know what's happening, but she is having flashes of memory and that might begin to explain what's going on. Uh, she's able to make some contact with some people, but it doesn't necessarily, she can't explain where she is or what's happening. So, it, you know, it's difficult for them to actually get to her, help her or or do anything else. Um, I don't want to say too much else about mm. the, the kind of plot of things, but it is really brilliantly constructed. I mean, I think as a piece of scripting, I think this is really genuinely mm -hmm. impressive in the way that it's told. You know, it's obviously one location pretty much throughout, as I say, with some flashbacks. But between Laurel's performance as this woman who is clearly very intelligent, uh, very rational, very scientific, very methodical, but also completely, you know, a donkey on the edge and absolutely at the end of her tether and terrified, you know, yeah. it's it's a gr and she kind of swings between being very analytical and really working things through and then just suddenly like losing it because you would because you're running out of air and there's no way out apparently and and mm. no one around to help you as far as you can tell and it's you know it's an absolutely terrifying situation uh so i just thought it was brilliantly brilliantly done but yeah i mean credit to to aja for the for the direction but also to christy leblanc for uh for writing such a great sort of thriller because i think the tension yeah. is is very oat indeed if you will <laughs> <laughs> mm. it was so on the uh, it was on the blacklist for a while in fact, right. not for a while. It was on the blacklist the year that the, mm. the script was... was Oxygen, not to be confused with the Jean-Michel Jarre album. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Although I'm sure it is in France, yeah. Listen to it at the same time, like the Pink Floyd, Wizard of Oz mashup, and who <laughs> yeah. knows what that might do to this movie. Given that this is all takes place in like the little coffin-esque cryotech, the visuals are fucking unbelievable. There yeah, are a couple of really, amazing really shots in this. And there's one sequence which blew my mind where the camera spins around her, even though she's in this thing, while she's having a conversation. And the use of the surround sound, sorry to be horribly entitled about my surround sound system, is fantastic yeah. where the voice she's talking to spins around the speakers it's really disorientated discombobulating mm -hmm. which is obviously what they were going for but they come out with an incredible amount of angles and close-ups and views and lighting to so it's never boring visually there's yeah. always visual interest there it's very distinct the use of color is excellent as well so you're never I mean, just the creativity on that I thought was 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 incredible. Just working out, like we'll put the camera here, and we'll put it there. Yeah. It's like you have like four square feet of space, and yet, and yet, it's pretty <laughs> fucking awesome. Yeah, I think a hundred percent. I think that the 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 angles that he finds and the way mm. that he finds to make this look as good as it does, and and even just the design of the chamber itself, the the way that this sort of futuristic uh, medical equipment is applied is. Yeah phenomenally well thought out. I, I just think it's a brilliantly designed film. Um, and yeah, I, mm. I loved it. And it's not just her lying in a box. Like the story as it plays out, you know, 
I, I found it incredibly com- compelling, like the mystery of her identity, her situation as it unfolds. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It really had the had me on the edge of my seat. I uh, yeah, I loved this. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was terrific. It was uh, a, a not a bit of surprise to me because I've 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 liked a lot of what Alex Adja has directed over the years. If you've never seen his Hills of Eyes, it's one of those remakes that's better than the original. We were talking about remakes recently. We did a we did something for uh, for the mag. We did a, an episode of the ranking, and uh, that. That for some reason that, that just slipped my mind. But then when I was you know preparing for the interview, I was like, oh, of course he directed the Hills of Eyes remake, which is really, mm. really, really, really good. And Switchblade Romance is fantastic. And what I love about that is it shows how far he's come as a director mm. since then. You know, I love my gore. He loves his gore as well. But there's a sophistication here and a restraint here as well, and an inventiveness also. Mm. Uh, the, this has my favorite shot of the year, hands down, so far. Again, I should stress, we're only in May. But the the shot I cannot talk about in, in this movie. Yeah, I, I think know the in, shot. I wrote yeah. down this shot yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's but it, there's so much, so much resourcefulness on display here. This really surprised me because it, it's another one of those movies. This feels like it came out of nowhere in a way, and it kind of did because this movie was manifested into into existence during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, it was just kind of floating around, and then he needed to make something. And as you've heard in the interview, that's kind of what happened so I'm glad he did because this yeah. is in a way his best film in a long long time and a, a really really lovely surprise indeed four stars in for Oxygen and now we move on to another film uh, <laughs> which Oxygen plays a part uh, or lack thereof because a forest fire deprives people of it or and also thrives upon it my god what a great segue <laughs> it is Those Who Wish Me Dead which is the, um, <laughs> which is the latest thriller from Taylor Sheridan, who is the writer of movies like Sicario and Sicario 2 and Hell or High Water. And most recently, he was also part of the screenplay writing team for Without Remorse, but we'll let that slide. And he is back as a director after the excellent Wind River a few years ago with Those Who Wish Me Dead, which continues the big screen comeback of Angelina Jolie after she took a little bit of a break for a couple of years and uh, she plays a smoke jumper or a fire marshal who is in the Montana wilderness and well I'll let Jimbo take it from here. Could we talk about Taylor Sheridan for a second though please? I love the fact that Taylor Sheridan who I will always remember as Deputy Hale from Sons of Anarchy turned 40 and thought fuck it I'm going to try my hand at writing a screenplay and I don't know, just knocked Sicario out one afternoon and then followed that up with Hell or High Water. And as you're saying, Wind River. I mean, the guy is on an absolute tear, admittedly, without remorse aside. Co-created Yellowstone as well. Um, it's, I mean, he's he's incredibly talented. Uh, as you said, this is his second sort of turn in the director's chair after Wind River, continuing his Element Location series, just to steal a gag from your review. Indeed. And technically, this is his third movie. He directed the film in 2011, but I well, think it's one of those ones where... He didn't really direct. He helped out of friend who was making that film okay. and he he doesn't see it as a film he directed he just helped them make sure it didn't go off the How rails convenient yeah he says they gave him a directing credit <laughs> trying to be nice but i think he tries to distance himself in the from same it. way that we don't really consider jim cameron to have directed piranha 2 even yeah, though he in, did because it's convenient for us in terms of crafting yeah, he a narrative kind of didn't kind of didn't but uh-huh. partly did but yeah you know okay that's but i think this even less so i think he had even less to do with vile than cameron did with uh with with that but anyway so this is based on the michael carita novel and i i was kind of thrown by the title of this those who wish me dead it sounds like an amy simons film do you know what i mean like a, mm. an existential weird <laughs> experimental indie film but of course it's nothing like that in fact it's it's a, an incredibly sort of 
pure throwback mid-90s thriller. Yeah. And I fucking love that because it's been so long since I've seen a film like this and I absolutely loved it to bits. So this stars, uh, so Nicholas Holt in this and Aidan Gillen play a pair of evil hitmen and they are in pursuit of a young boy played by F- Finn Little uh, to silence him for what he knows. Uh, he ends up running through the Montana wilderness uh, and runs into, as you say, smoke jumper Hannah, played by Angelina Jolie. So they have to try and not get deaded by the hitmen and then not get deaded by the giant fire, which is roaring through the forest. So, and she's got her own inner demons to deal with from a previous fire. There's lots of good character stuff going on. But this is kind of, so it's parts, you know, 90s mid-budget thriller, people trying not to get killed by bad people, but also parts, you know, disaster movie with environmental peril with a huge fire. And I just thought it was really compelling all the way through. Like, it's not it's not massive spectacle, though I do think the fire in itself has a... It's literally a force of nature, but it just looks pretty overwhelmingly powerful. The idea mm-hmm. there's been a lot of, you know, in real life, American wildfires have been a significant problem. And I think what this film really does is when they're in the heart of it, it gives you a sense of how formidable and how terrifying these forest fires actually can be. Uh, but also how formidable and terrifying Aidan Gillen can be when playing a complete <laughs> sociopath. <laughs> but yeah, really liked what he did with this. I thought the character work was good. I think it's like... He has a thing, I think, Sheridan does, for minimising plot and maximizing character i think that's how he likes to approach the things he writes and obviously this is an adaptation so i think it's slightly different so he's gone uh, there's a lot more sort of plot movement i think in Mm. this one but yeah i thought it was really really good more than anything else it made me wish that i was seeing this in the cinema especially the big fire scenes i kind of watched that and i thought i'm enjoying this a lot i would love this on a big screen so i do hope people get the chance to watch that on the big screen this is obviously coming out next week for the big screen yes when people can see in the cinema so i think you know definitely see it in the big screen if you can yeah. But yeah, it felt like a, a nice throwback thriller for me. Uh, it's nicely Angelina Jolie back in a kind of action-led role. It's been far, far too long, and she's very, very good at this stuff. Yeah. It, weirdly, I actually think, you know, given that she's the star of the film, I almost wish she had more to do in this. There are a lot of moving parts in this. John Berntel's in this as well. And there are large sequences where Angelina Jolie is, you know, frankly, off in the woods and you miss her very much when she's not on screen so i think i've had one criticism would be please can we have more angelina in this film that's my big note for this as well um i i would 100 percent agree on it feeling like a 90s throwback and and that being a good thing in this case Mm. but i really wanted more from her and i felt like we we were maybe like two character scenes short of greatness um in in that in that arc Mm. and and i think that would have made it better and i think if you'd had a couple more scenes with her and this little boy i think again that that bond would have been stronger and the film would have been better for it which is not to say it's bad i just i just think it could have been Mm. greater um and yeah, John Berntel is is good and fun. I thought uh, this is not his peak hair, you know. I, I have, I have <laughs> I'm going to quibble with that. It wasn't A grade hair. Are you you're absolutely? Are you fucking kidding me? Have you seen the man in this movie? No, look, I love I love the man in this movie. Like, I'm very much here for it, and I, I even like his hair in this movie. My problem is it, it sort of devolves to a centre part for a lot of the movie, and he has kind of <laughs> '90s curtains, and I'm not sure that's the kind of '90s throwback we want from this movie. <laughs> and if somebody would just have tousled his hair, he has a, mm. you know, there's somebody on screen, like no spoilers, but there's somebody on screen who could easily tousel his hair for significant periods of time, then that you know that would be an extra star from me. I'm just saying. <laughs> Wow. I can't argue harsh. with any of that. You're very, very harsh. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought John Bernthal was great in this. Uh, I'm not just saying that because he's my, my birthday bro. Uh, he and I share the exact same birthday. The exact wow. same birthday. Wow. And if you look the at chances? the two of you, indistinguishable. 
Oh, absolutely. It really is. Um, <laughs> put us you know, side by side and it's like, wow, peas in a pod. Peas in a... Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I thought this movie was terrific. Uh, interesting enough, uh, Jeremy Dillon, who has appeared in the podcast and has his own tremendous podcast, uh, My Favourite Album, in which Helen has recently appeared. I did. Flogging her book. All right. Um, <laughs> Having a nice chat with Jeremy, actually. That's right. Sorry, that's what it was. Chilling shamelessly. Yeah. Oh Jeremy uh, tweeted us last week going, Lose Me Wish You Dead is, you know, if I see a better film than this this year, I'll be surprised. It's terrific. And I hope that you guys don't get to see it. I hope you guys get to see it on the biggest screen possible with an audience and not on a link with your name popping up in the screen quite, every five quite. minutes. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. We saw it on a, <laughs> on, a, on a link, on a screen with my name popping up every five yeah. minutes, obscuring John Bernthal's incredible hair and Angela Jolie's extraordinary face. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. word. And um, I didn't see it on a big screen. So this is the movie that I'm going to go see, I think, next Wednesday. My wife hasn't seen this movie yet. I think she's going to love it. She's a big fan of uh, John Bernthal's hair. So she is going to love it on the biggest screen possible. Uh, I also think that Aidan Gillen and Nick Holt, um, Nick Holt, so for best friends, uh, Aidan <laughs> Gillen and Nicholas Holt are excellent in this as the yeah. kinds of really ruthlessly efficient, resourceful, psychopaths that are terrifying when you put them to any scene with your heroes because the film establishes very early on that they will kill anybody who gets in their way for any reason whatsoever and so when you have them in scenes with Show Lee or or Bernthal or the kid or Medina Sanghor who plays John Bernthal's wife you are on tenterhooks the mm. entire time uh, and you're always with them they're always a couple of steps ahead of our heroes um, I think there's a couple of quibbles I would have with it. I think the aforementioned Angelina Jolie being sidelined for the first half of the movie. She's in a, a fire tower in the middle of the Montana forest, trying to spot Sam Neill, presumably. And uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a problem. And I think potentially it gets a little predictable movie-movie-ish towards the end. Yeah, maybe. But... Apart from that, I had an absolute blast and I can't wait to see this on the big screen. So we gave this one four stars. Four stars also for those who wish me dead. AKA Fire Forest. AKA Fire Forest. Um, now, last week we said that uh, Fried Barry, which is a movie that came out on Shudder last week, it is available only on Shudder. Uh, we gave it three stars, but we didn't have time to review it. We hadn't seen it ourselves, but we have now, haven't we, Hell's Bells? We have seen Ryan Kruger's Fried Barry, which is about a man possessed by an alien going on a rampage of a sort through mm. Cape Town. Now, uh, this is a kind of DIY movie by Ryan Kruger, uh, which he's teamed up with this extra, this this really interesting looking guy, this extra called Gary Green, who plays this guy called Barry. Um, and so I think people are thinking, oh, this might be the next Neil Blomkamp. This might be the next Neil Blomkamp, Charlotte Copley type configuration. What did you make I mean of it? Yeah, okay. I, I wouldn't say that. Um I don't think that Gary Green, the the guy who plays Barry, is is an is a great actor, actually. Um I think he's got an extraordinary looking face, which which uh Ryan Kruger really leans into and makes the most of throughout this film, but I but I don't think he's necessarily a great actor. So I would he, say Luke Goss playing Cat Weasel and you're halfway there. <laughs> that's that's probably fair. He's uh, when we meet him, you know, he's a drug addict. He's a kind of deadbeat dad. He's a, a, a loser. And then he is abduct abducted by aliens and either uh, possessed or, or 
you know, replaced or something. There isn't enough of a contrast, basically. I feel like the film would have worked better if he'd been a little bit more human to begin with. But as it is, you know, he comes back as this person who's just learning how to work a human body. And it's not clear that there's that much difference from the guy we saw before, who also didn't seem to be very good at being a human. So I thought that was a bit of a mistake in the, in the writing, which is also down to, to um, Ryan Kruger, who has uh, expanded his own short film here with, uh, I think, James C. Williamson, uh, the script as well. I didn't like a lot of this. I can see that there's potential here. I think Kruger has an eye and I think there's some really extraordinary images in this uh, as horror films go. I think there's some you know, gorgeous use of the neon lighting of the, the sort of the nighttime scenes. There's some really effective kind of horror gore. But I hated Barry so much as both a human and an alien. And I hated the portrayal of women even more uh, throughout the film, pretty much without exception, that I had a real hard time getting into this even even slightly. So, you know, I can see that there's potential here for for better things in the future. But I mm. seriously take a really good long hard look at your women because this shit is not acceptable. There's a there's a running theme throughout the movie where every single woman he meets uh, is irresistibly attracted to Fry Barry, and I wondered if there was. I mean, Some sort of thing that we missed where he was throwing alien pheromones into the air to, to make that happen. But, but I mean, even, you know, even outside that, even when women in, interact with each other or with other people or with him pre-alien, mm. they're, they're horrific. I, I hated them, hated it so much for that. So I, I had real trouble getting past that. Hated mm. that. <laughs> did I mention I hated it? I don't know if I did. I, I don't think you did. I don't think you no, did. Okay, but um, but look, like I say, like I think uh, you know, I can see why people have praised this film. I do think there is potential here mm -hmm. in this director, but um, but but not this plot, not this actor, and and definitely not these women. So yes, we gave this one three stars. Ian Freer gave us three stars, and he praised the uh, the filmmaking and the cinematic eye. But that is out on Shudder, and Those Who Wish Me Dead is out in cinemas as of Monday, and Oxygen is out on Netflix. But I want to focus very, very quickly, just to wrap this up, on the movies that are going to be out on Monday, May 17th. Uh, so with cinemas opening around the country, and of course Picture House and Cineworld opening on Wednesday, the 19th of May, films you can watch next week include The Unholy, which is a horror film starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Mm. Mortal Kombat is hitting cinemas uh, along with Godzilla versus Kong. So that's going to be exciting. If you wanted to see Spectacle on the big screen, now you can. Other films that are hitting the big screen are Meanery, Nomadland, of course, the best picture winner. Sound of Metal, we'll be talking about that in a few seconds uh, as well. Uh, great, great films that perhaps if you didn't see them before because you didn't want to watch them on a computer screen or your TV, Go and see them on the big screen, folks. But new films that are opening include Peter Rabbit 2 and Spiral from the Book of Saw. And we're going to be reviewing those on next week's show. Obviously, check your local listings. Be safe. Wear a mask. Be socially distanced. All the good stuff. But if you can, if you feel safe and you want to go to a cinema, do so. If you don't, totally fine. Anyway, time for our last guest on the show this week. It is a bumper bonanza episode that we might as well lean into it, but here we go. <laughs> so uh, Sound of Metal is one of my films of the year. It is absolutely fantastic. Riz Ahmed plays a heavy metal drummer who suddenly, shockingly loses his hearing. And he goes to a hearing impaired community run by Paul Racy, who was also 
nominated for an Oscar, as was as was Riz. Uh, Riz, like he's my best friend. And uh, it's a wonderful, beautifully emotional insight, but not being sentimental, into his his struggle to come to terms with his new set of circumstances, shall we say. So Darius Martyr and Riz Ahmed were on the podcast a couple of months ago. The film is out on DVD and Blu-ray very, very soon after this. So with the movie hitting cinemas on Monday and coming out on DVD and Blu-ray very, very soon as well, I managed to get Darius Martyr, uh, who is actually in London right now, weirdly enough, shooting something. But I managed to get Darius Martyr just before he jumped on a plane to come to London to sit down with me for a big old spoilerific chat that will be going up as a spoiler special on its own for spoiler special subscribers. But what you're going to hear now is a bit of a preview of that. You're going to hear roughly the first 15 minutes or so of that conversation. And if you like that, if you want more, there's another 40 minutes or so awaiting spoiler special subscribers, plus a conversation between me, Helen, and Amon Warman as well, if that indeed floats your boat. So there are some spoilers in this conversation, but Darius Martyr is a wonderful conversationalist, a great talker. And uh, here we go, me talking to Darius Martyr. If you haven't seen Sound of Metal, maybe skip this one. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this very, very special Sound of Metal podcast by the film's writer and director, Darius Martyr. How are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's nice to see you. Uh, likewise, likewise. Have you recovered from from the Oscars? How was that? <laughs> you know, it was interesting. It was really surreal and quite lovely uh, coming together with the team. I think that was the major, you know, after a year of lockdown and everything virtual, it was profound to to connect with the team, you know, mm. and to see to see these wonderful people that had put their heart into this film, you know, my brother and and and. Derek C in France, who I hadn't seen in years. And it was just, a, it was just really a gift in that way. And no, I haven't recovered. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, this is going to be a fun interview then. If you haven't recovered, it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's keep it fresh. No, I went right into shooting actually. So in that sense, I, I haven't really sat with it. So it's kind of nice. I haven't, I went right into shooting something else literally the next day. And then I had a UK shoot uh, in LA time. So it started at two in the morning and I've just been on this train ever since. So I haven't sat with the experience yet. I really haven't. It's been one of the most busy periods. So it, it, it's interesting. And in a way I haven't recovered. I kind of went through that and, and haven't taken a breath. And this has been obviously such an elongated experience for you because of because of COVID. I mean, it's it's now what you've been sitting with this movie. This movie's been in your head for a long time, but the movie itself has has existed as an entity for two years now. That's and you're still talking yeah. about it. It's like I'm you're not tired. tired. Yeah, it's like you're not tired of talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone get that guy to stop talking about his movie. Uh, it is. It has been a, a remarkably. A long process and um, and a, and probably an unusual process because we'll never go through it quite like this again. Um, and it's been, you know, in a funny way, a lot of the a lot of the people, Riz and Paul and and Nicola and the sound, they've mentioned to me at different times that it, it's actually been a lifeline because you know during lockdown, even though the the interviews have have, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of virtual interviews, but the connection to people has been important and the connection to each other. So it's been a, a strange kind of blessing also. 
Yeah, because that's obviously what the movie's about, and to a, to a certain degree, it's about it's about Ruben trying to connect, pushing away connection, and then ultimately embracing a connection with with himself, which he's been trying to run away from for the entire movie. Which so that that's that obviously something that that you didn't know there was going to be a pandemic, but there's an extra layer there because of that. There really is, and you know, Riz and I joked about it many many times over this past year. It, it, about the ways in which we were being challenged, just like we had set up in the film and just like we went through, but l- really being challenged in that way, which I think everybody it was and still is, you know, I mean, I was doing push-ups on my kitchen floor and, you know, going crazy and Riz too. And he would, you know, it, we were, we were feeling it like everyone was feeling it. And yes, I didn't plan the pandemic. I, I, I definitely didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> I, um, it was a very interesting and impossible to ignore crossover there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, it was, you know, it's an entire globe dealing with the loss of their, their identities as they knew it. And, and it was a health crisis that, you know, made us look at ourselves and made us deal with ourselves in a different way. And if you didn't, if you ignored it, like Ruben, if you, if you lived in denial, it will, it will hurt you it will it will actually uh hurt you and hurt others so it was very the the parallels were impossible to ignore absolutely and that's something we're going to dig into because this is a deep dive into the film and some of the key moments from the film uh but i always like to start these things with the big question on everybody's lips after they've seen sound of metal and it is overwhelmingly black gammon where did that band name come from <laughs> well i made um Riz and Olivia came up with that name and we, we did a lot of work. You know, what's interesting, Chris, Mm -hmm. you know, I have done so many interviews, so many interviews and nobody's asked me that. (laughs) I just realized as you asked it, I was like, that's a question I haven't answered, which is strange. You would think that would have come up. Does that make me a genius? I think it does. I'm, I'm just going to give you some credit right off the bat. And then later I'll tear you down, but <laughs> no, like absolutely. right up there. <laughs> the ones I'm about to ask you hackneyed. Yes, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to look back at this as the one moment that we had a fresh <laughs> question. No, I'm kidding. No, the, the, uh, black Ammon, black Ammon was this process of, you know, ba- basically building up the whole relationship, the entire backstory of, of Ruben and Lou, which I really put to Riz and Olivia. We, we spent a lot of time talking about their, their past and how they met. And we, they came to this idea that they would play, you know, they met in recovery and that they would play, um, backgammon together. And then Riz, who, who's very much into puns, had this whole idea that their band was a name that really annoyed Lou. You know, like she she would get like lovingly annoyed at his puns, but also it was a play on you know uh, on their on their act on the actual forming of their connection, which was very much mired in pain. Yes. Um. So it was the it was the game that they played that connected them and kind of pulled them out of this kind of spiraling darkness and um. And they actually had in that airstream, they have a Black Ammon game built in between the two seats. If you ever find ah. like yourself, you know, so actually we have like, you know, and it's just their, their little like silly thing that they do on the road where they'll stop and play a, 
a, a backgammon game. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it was really fun to come to it, and they they batted around all sorts of things. But you know, I also you know had a kind of rule with them that if if something in if something came, I wasn't going to get in the way of it. You know, I was going to support that kind of exploration and that journey, and that's that's what came up. So in, in terms of the, the writing process, I know this was a long writing process for, for your, your and your brother, Abraham. And in terms of that backstory, forming that backstory for, for Ruben and Lou, how difficult was that? Because within that backstory is Lou's relationship with her father, who is, of course, rich and could easily have paid for if things had been different, Ruben's surgery. Uh, within that, of course, is then the the impetus for Ruben to go to Paris at the end of the movie. How much of that came organically? How much of that did you have to to really work for in terms of setting that up? Man, we really had to work for that. Um, it, you know, the forming of the character of Lou took a long, long time. And my brother and I spent, we actually probably wrote more pages on Lou than Ruben. Um, it was so important that that engine of the story and that kind of connection to each other made some sense and was interesting and was really, really kind of humming as an, as this kind of a story engine. And, um, and so that a lot of things informed that final choice to, to dig into that particular backstory for Lou. Um, and, it was a fascinating journey to get there. I mean, we we wrote we wrote so many pages of Lou before we got there, but we found this wonderful inspiration in her father, and uh, that kind of I think we found uh, we really drew from our own grandfather actually, and a relationship with um, uh, it, which had nothing to do with wealth. He wasn't wealthy at all, but it had to do with creative kind of manic intensity and um and the relationship of two artists that lou was the product of uh of of that relationship and she you know she, she had to kind of she fled with her mother her mother kind of pulled her out of that in a moment of trauma when she was quite young and when I say trauma, it was, it was dr maybe more drama than trauma, mm -hmm. um, for her mother, but she was pulled away from her father and her mother ended up, um, taking her own life. Um, but, but, you know, when she took her own life, there was the suggestion of maybe wanting Lou to come with her. Um, so, you know, again, none of this is on the page, but it's all very well understood. So, and this was, this was, this came actually from a, uh, the story of a person I know, um, who, who had experienced this and what I noticed and was really fascinated with and, and really moved by is the way in which when, when, a when something happens like that, you, when you have a kind of narcissist for a mother and you're an only daughter, you, you struggle with the ability to be alive you know, how do I, how can I be on this earth? And I think that's entirely what Lou is dealing with is how, how am I allowed to be on this earth? Um, mm. and music, the playing of music on the stage for her was that, 
was the place she was allowed to be, but it was also almost an exorcism. She was wearing the dress that her mother wore when she died. It was this very, very dark and cathartic experience every night, but it was her trying to work her way through that pain mm-hmm. and that, and that paradox of, of how you, how you can live when, um, you, you, when you are the survivor and she didn't really feel like she should be allowed to live. So that's why she's a cutter. You know, she's trying to feel, she's trying to feel that life. And it was interesting how much specific backstory we built for Lou and how much never explicitly hits the page. Um, but I, I always feel, I always feel it, you know, it's all there. And her father was very much like a Serge Gainsbourg kind of, a uh, a creation and, and kind of riffing on that riffing on, um, that word riffing, but like, I, mm. I actually met Charlotte Gainsbourg and found my uh, years, years back and found myself thinking about that family, family dynamic a lot. Mm. And, and, and slowly this permeation of French culture became like the one culture that really felt like felt right for this character, which is to say, you know, French culture is kind of unlike any, like who would be that kind of magnetic persona of a father that would, you know, for Lou, it, it couldn't be that she had a rich dad and she could call him and get money. This was the last place on earth she wanted to go, you know, and that's, a, that was in earlier drafts. We had much more exploration of that moment. We just, it was even in the draft. We just cut it down ultimately, but that was the last place on earth she wanted to go. That was the place that she was hiding from with Ruben. You know, is going, yeah. is dealing yeah. with her father, is yeah. dealing with her past at all, you know? And so that, that became this wonderful uh, crossroads for both of them. I mean, and that's, I, I actually wrote that whole story going back, my brother and I going back to Europe because it was as interesting, you know, uh, psychologically. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fascinating as well because obviously the film locks us. I, I'm not sure. I've seen it a, f- a few times now, but I'm not sure that there's a scene in which Ruben's not present. So I, 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 yeah, it's, so we're, we're locked into his POV from the first shot to the last shot, but did you explore at any point? Did you consider, uh, going off and seeing what happened, what was happening to Lou? It's whenever we, whenever we see her at the, at the end of the film, it's such a marked change from when we've last, when we last saw her in the film. Well, 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 first of all, we began cross-cutting a lot with those two. You know, her story was so important to us. And, um, but it, that was way early in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, we tried it. We worked with it. What was it to cross-cut? And, and I found myself, both of us, you know, realizing that you can't have a first-person perspective that's not committed. I mean, it's just what it is. And if you don't commit to that perspective, you don't have the effect that the movie has, which is this kind of hyper empathy machine. You, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. And, and it's a very, very rare thing to have a first person perspective in a film. It, it almost never happens, especially when it's committed. It was a very interesting process of committing and recommitting, you know, because the, the temptation to to move the camera even subtly toward Lou as the focal point. It was so great all the time. You kind of want to, you want that relief, you know, in, in a story or a movie, you want to just go, Oh God, can I just go to the B plot or can I just cross cut? And in this one, it needed to be relentless. And, and that was, 
So we, we had to kill a lot of darlings in order to do that. And I, but I will tell you, I, I very much entertained the idea of shooting an entirely uh, parallel film with, so that basically a film that, that splits when, when they're, you know, might begin with the cab right when they separate in the beginning of the movie and plays out Lou's whole journey until Ruben shows up. And, you know, cause it was so interesting to both of us and my brother and I, yeah. and, but it needed its own movie. You can't yeah. tell this, you cannot tell this story in a non-committed language. It has to be a first person perspective. And even so much that I recut the film after Toronto, after we premiered, because I was sitting in Toronto and, you know, Mickle, who's just my wonderful editor, so incredible. We both had this experience a little bit where he realized there were a couple moments in the film that slightly deviated, you know, where you were slightly in Lou's perspective mm. and it really hurt the movie. It really, it really, it was a, it violated our language a little bit, even, even though what you got from it seemed like it was working, you, you had to really stick to this uh, mm. perspective. It was very important for the ultimate feeling of the movie. And that was Darius Martyr. And as I say, if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, then it's available on the Spoilers special channel as of Monday, Monday, May 17th. Uh, so sign up now if you fancy that. But on that note, on that endlessly shilly note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. So sorry about the length. We will be back next week. Join us for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... You'll like this, folks. You'll like this. Chris Rock, mm. star of Spiral from the Book of Saw, and Sigourney Weaver, <gasps> star of My New York Year. That might be our best lineup this year, and we've had some pretty damn good lineups in the podcast this year. So, yeah, keep them coming, Hollywood. Keep them coming. Um, now, you may you may be saying to yourself, hey, Chris, where the hell are Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd? Uh, you huh. promised them on the last two podcasts now. Um and that's a very good question. And we're still trying to make it happen. They're in LA. We're here. They're very, very busy with their new podcast. It's called The Friendship Onion. And it's about their experiences making The Lord of the Rings. And that actually is out on the 18th. It begins. The first episode is out next week on the 18th. So we're hoping to get them on to either next week's episode or the episode after that. But I promise you, I promise you that at some point on this podcast, you will have Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd together. That is my promise. This, I swear to you. Anyway, on that note, it is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names. I mean, we barely even tried this week. Yeah. Cesium. James I mean, Dyer. it's an element like oxygen. I was feeling slightly uninspired. And speaking of slightly uninspired, the new episode of the Pilot TV podcast airs <laughs> on Monday with Catherine Kelly as our guest. She'll be talking about her role in season two or series two, I should say, of ITV's Innocent. We'll also be talking about Joss Whedon's The Nevers. Uh, and we'll also be talking about We Are Lady Parts, which is an excellent Channel 4 comedy, mm. except I haven't fully seen it because the screener that I've sent wasn't working, which led me to send the ill-advised email to Boyd today saying, I can't get hold of Lady Parts. An email which I have no doubt will return to haunt me at some point in the future. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you can't get hold of Lady Parts. I'm sorry about the length. <laughs> this podcast has summed up our love lives. <laughs> I have to say, cesium is an element I've never heard of. Really, Chris? Yeah. Well, I think you'll find it is on the periodic table of the elements. Well, yes, obviously, James, but I think you need a bit more than that. 
I don't know what it is. Like, what is? I know, t- Helen. You know, you know things. Did you get it from the same part of the table as oxygen? No, it's on like- the left. Cesium's on the left. I know it's on the left. I don't know what it's the left the is. Sam What's Wilson the Wilson of elements. Talk to me about the elements, Helen. What's on the left? I just no. I refuse. Go and do your own homework. <laughs> it's goodbye from cesium. It is also goodbye from Omicron Prime. Okay, so Omicron was obviously from. Yeah, from uh, Omicron, oxygen. Yes, yeah, yes oxygen. The, and then Prime, I just added to sound like a transformer. Oh, oh, I see. Yes, I see what you did there. Yeah. Anywho, look, <laughs> it's been a long day for all of it us. Really I don't has. think any of us were that inspired today for our squadcast name. Speak for yourself, Helen, because it's goodbye from me. Deep fried kebabby uh-huh. because of fried Barry, yeah. you see. And then I thought, fried Chrissy and then no one calls me Chrissy and then I thought oh kebab I guess and deep fried kebab as in Avengers Infinity War so it's another Marvel anyway it's goodbye from me thank you so much for listening I'm off to once again apologise for the length and hope that at some point tonight Liverpool remember what a hat trick is in a positive way thanks for listening see you next time bye bye